Greetings, everyone. Welcome to D Green with Amy. I'm Amy. After adopting a whole food plant-based lifestyle, my hubby Rick and I lost over 130 pounds. Now I coach others on their plant-based journey. Just has voice. Let's welcome our guest. Dr. Peter Rogers is a Stanford and Harvard-educated MD who for over 30 years has helped people optimize performance for school, sports, and health. He is an imaging-guided surgeon and neuroradiologist who has written nutrition, medical, and study skill books. Please click like to help Be Green with Amy. Welcome, Dr. Peter Rogers. Greetings and welcome, Dr. Rogers. Hi. Hi. You know, I am truly excited to have you on the show. You are a self-proclaimed bad boy of veganism and health and nutrition. <laughs> <laughs> and for good reason, Dr. Rogers is not your typical expert. He tells us what we need to know, even if it's not what the average person wants to hear. And even if it's something that other experts are hesitant to say. And Dr. Rogers, he reads all the known research on the topics that he speaks about, and he analyzes the data, he synthesizes the knowledge, and he presents us with novel insights that you won't find in any Harvard medical textbook, right, Dr. Rogers? Yeah, I, I think I kind of come from an unusual background. Because I've been interested in cognitive optimization for a long time, uh, going back, gosh, since I was a teenager. And then what also happened is I work as a neuroradiologist. And I spent a lot of time trying to figure out why does this person have cognitive impairment? Why are they demented? And that has led me to read an extensive amount about brain neurotoxins, for example. And I also had the experience, too, is my kids are growing up now. My wife works most of the time. I got nothing to do. I sit around reading. And I went through all these textbooks. And they're all wrong. All the conventional medical textbooks are wrong on the, all the major subjects. It's, it's rather amazing. But, you know, you look at atherosclerosis, the pioneers of atherosclerosis, none of them are in the book. You look at autoimmune disease, they don't even mention leaky gut. I mean, I'm not kidding. And so, I, you know, I wish I had more time. I'd like to rewrite the textbooks. Um, but uh, anyways, there's a lot of useful stuff people can know that will help them. Right. But would they let you rewrite the textbooks? That's the problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll rewrite it. It'll be the best thing ever done. And then no one will ever find out about it. That's what will probably happen. A million years from now, somebody will dig it up and say, oh, this is it. <laughs> Why wasn't this known? <laughs> well, today we're delving into a topic that affects millions of lives around the world, dementia. So I want to tell you, Green Warriors, that you get ready because you're going to learn what most doctors don't know about this condition and what you can do to avoid it. Because I think we're going to be exploring uncharted territories of knowledge. <laughs> so I, Dr. Rogers, typically when he's um, has a guest on the show, or he also has a YouTube channel, he typically does presentations, which are just marvelous. And, and you could just feel as if you were going to medical school. Well, you'd feel as if you were going to the correct medical school because you'd be learning about things that most medical doctors don't know about. And it would really be so helpful to learn. But it, so in his format, he usually does presentations and he has uh, graphics that he can show to illustrate his points. But I thought it would be fun because if you're a Green Warrior, you're familiar. 
that I do a game with you guys, which is called True or False. So I thought it'd be fun to do it in that format instead of Dr. Rogers' typical format. So let's get started. It's time for True or False on Be Green with Amy Live. Answer true or false to Amy's questions in the comments below, and Amy will ask our guest for the expert answer. Okay, so now we are talking about dementia, and we're going to let Dr. Rogers show off all of his knowledge, and we're going to see what if you can guess what his answer is going to be. So let's start with this one. True or false, the most common cause of dementia is overtreated hypertension, which would be blood high blood pressure. So Green Warriors, type in your guess, and then we're going not, not just going to get the answer. We're going to find out what the real truth is here. Okay, so while they're typing that in, go ahead, Dr. Rogers, tell us about that. Okay, well, this is kind of a, this is a big question. This is sort of opening up all of the conceptual theories of dementia. So basically, I'm gonna say, I need a little time to, to address this one, because this is not a simple question. First of all, the default setting for Alzheimer's, if you look up dementia, you're gonna hear Alzheimer's dementia is the most common cause of dementia. People are gonna tell you it's you know variable numbers from 60% to 80% or more. And what I'm gonna say, just from the beginning, I think Alzheimer's dementia is kind of stupid, okay? Kind of almost close to nonsense. And let me explain why I say that. It's important to understand that is, if you say a person has Alzheimer's, what's the clinical history question you ask them to diagnose it? There is none, okay? What's the physical exam? And physical exam finding you can ask them to diagnose Alzheimer's. There is none. What's the reliable blood test to diagnose Alzheimer's? There is none. There's some tests they're working on, you know, but there's none that's reliable. You can confidently say this patient has Alzheimer's. Okay. Well, what's the imaging test? They'll say, well, you can look at an MRI of the brain, medial temporal lobe atrophy, parietal convexity atrophy, but I almost never see that. I look at thousands of brains for dementia. So, you know, then you can talk about the amyloid, you know, deposition test, nuclear medicine scans, PET scans. They're not that useful. They're not, they're not that useful or specific. Yeah, they can lean you in this direction, but they're not that great. And you say, well, of course we can diagnose it with autopsy. Well, guess what? You can't really diagnose it effectively with autopsy either because lots of cognitively normal people also have lots of senile plaques and neurofibrillary tangles. So it's not that confident in diagnosis at autopsy. And the goal is, what's the treatment? Well, you can give them a pill that doesn't work. So what I'm saying is if you look at Alzheimer's disease, you have a disease that you can't really diagnose whether the patient's alive or dead and you have a treatment that doesn't work. I mean, doesn't that sound kind of like a joke? All right, so now let's talk about what is potentially useful. Okay, I think there's multiple theories of Alzheimer's and I think the best overall overarching most useful theory is the work of Jack Delatore, a PhD. And he did some very interesting work. He tied off the carotid artery in a mouse. So you got carotid arteries in the front, vertebral arteries in the back. He tied off the carotid artery of a mouse, middle-aged and older mouse, they would become demented two months later. And you say, well, why is it demented? You figured when he goes in, he does an autopsy on the mouse's brain, he's expecting to see a big stroke on the side where he tied off the carotid. There's no stroke. The brain's just a little atrophic on that side, shrunken. So you say, well, what's that all about? And after studying that for a while, I came to the conclusion the brain is just shrinking on the side where you diminish arterial blood flow because the neurons can't survive. Chronic, and he came up, he called this theory chronic cerebral hypoperfusion as a cause of Alzheimer's, and it's gotten labeled now. And we really shouldn't even say Alzheimer's. Let's say dementia, okay? So dementia is D to remove mentation, the mind, to remove the mind, dementia. Okay, so chronic lack of blood flow, and it's now called the vascular hypothesis of dementia or the vascular hypothesis of Alzheimer. And just not confuse things, there's post-stroke dementia, having having a big stroke and then becoming dement because of that. But this is different. 
This is a vascular cause without a stroke. Okay. And I think it's very important to get this because you say, okay, well, a person has uh, occluded carotid artery. They don't get enough blood to their brain on a chronic basis. And they become demented. But it didn't happen in the younger mice. So that's, first of all, interesting. And after studying mouse and human blood flow, um, humans tend to drop their cerebral perfusion, the blood supply to the brain, about 20% from the age of 20 years old to 60 years old. Okay. So they're more vulnerable to having problems, older persons. Now, that data is always just a rough estimate because... You know, what are you feeding the mice to get that data? What were the human patients eating to get that data? If you look at one of these populations that eats a primarily plant-based diet, Tatahumata, Mamo, and other ones, they'll have the same blood pressure as a teenager as they do in their 70s. So a person who's eating healthy all along, they tend to maintain their arteries, their blood pressure and whatnot quite well all through their entire lives. So what I'm saying is that statement of a 20% drop in cerebral blood flow from the ages of 20 to 60 I'm going to bet you that's in part due to what those populations were eating. But just so you know, that's pretty standard, that, that number, 20% drop. And it did happen in the mice, but I don't know exactly the perfect mouse diet and was he feeding them that or not, okay, in terms of like an overview. Okay, so now we start saying, well, how does this relate back to your question about hypertension? Well, why do we have high blood pressure to begin with? Imagine yourself standing up. Where is it hardest to get blood supply? To the brain, up to the top of the brain, maybe the top of the hair. Maybe I didn't get enough blood to the top of my hair, but that's more complicated hair loss, okay? But to the top of the brain, perhaps, um, and then what makes the blood pressure go up? For example, if you have a lot of saturated fat, that'll cause the red blood cells to stick together, and pressure has to go up because you're pumping thick blood then like a, like a milkshake rather than like water, so to speak, okay? In addition, high dietary sodium. That's a vasoconstrictor, inhibits endothelial nitric oxide. So when you constrict the blood vessels, you have to pump harder to get it up to the top of your head. Okay, so now we raise the question, though. I came up with this term. I made it up. I call it mouse equivalence. Well, how do we get a mouse equivalent to, you know, deletory tying off the carotid? Because some people have carotid artery occlusions from atherosclerosis, but not that many. Some have severe stenosis, narrowings, not that many. But tons of people are hypertensive, and they're potentially overtreating their hypertension. And are they ending up with a mouse equivalent? I think they are. Okay. Now, it's hard to precisely calculate those numbers, but this raises important questions. What should be your threshold for the top number, the systolic number in your blood pressure? Do you want to try to stay below 160, stay below 150? Some people say stay below 140. Others say stay below 130. So that's an important decision. And what I'm trying to say is be careful about overtreating it. And you're kind of stuck looking for what you would call the Goldilocks perfect medium with hypertension. If the pressure is too high, especially when it's chronically over 160 and higher, it's coming in at a hard pressure and it's smacking away at those arterial bifurcations. Let's say you have an arterial bifurcation. When the blood comes up, it hits the bifurcation between the two branches, you know, this little median divider here, so to speak, before it goes up to this side or this side. And it, it traumatizes that segment. And then the artery becomes hypertrophic to protect itself from the trauma of the high pressures. And so you're chronically damaging all these small vessels in your brain if your pressure is too high. And over time, that damage to the small vessels will lead to less oxygen delivery to the brain. But like I said, you're stuck with a Goldilocks balance. If the pressure is too low, you're like the mouse, mouse equivalent. So what I'm saying is the best thing you could do is optimize your blood pressure by, you know, optimizing your diet, minimizing your dietary sodium as well, so that you don't end up stuck in this trap, so to speak. Uh, but I do think overtreated hypertension is a major cause. But then you start saying, well, what else? Aortic regurgitation, aortic valve of the heart, aortic stenosis. Those are relatively common valvular diseases. Atrial fibrillation, a lot of people have that. They're dropping down their uh, ventricular filling. 
like the mouse. What about congestive heart failure? Like the mouse. A lot of people go over open heart surgery. They run them hypotensive intraoperatively, put them on the heart-lung bypass pump. Okay. My father had an open heart surgery many years ago before I understood atherosclerosis well enough to talk him out of it. I tried to, but I didn't know enough to force him out of it. And the cardiologist kind of bullied him into it and he went for it. But the point I'm saying is post-operatively, I stayed with him in the ICU. I stayed with him the entire time. They ran his pressure like about 85 over 60. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, why are you running this pressure so low? I had the anesthesiologist come over. You know, I, I wouldn't accept that. And he's like, oh, we don't want him to bleed out. It is anastomosis. That's where they plug in the bypass grafts. So what I'm trying to say is my dad, I think, was much healthier than the average cabbage patient, coronary artery bypass graft patient. But And he came out of it fine. But you can understand why people are at risk to become demented from that. That's a prolonged cerebral hypoperfusion like the mouse. So to make a long story short, what I'm saying is I do think a significant number of people are probably impairing their brain, becoming a mouse equivalent by overtreating their hypertension. But one has to be careful too. Like we said, you gotta, you don't want the pressure to be too high either. Right. And, and we want to say at this point, you always have to work with your doctor, but you should always be looking at other studies and other people that that are in this movement here that are talking about changing your diet. And if you do decide to change your diet, be careful to talk to your doctor because it's so effective that you could become dangerously over-medicated. Oh, so. right. <laughs> yeah. If somebody immediately changes their diet and they take the same dose of medication, they could drop their pressure too low and pass out or, you know, so. Yeah. So, we, so, but that's how effective it is, right? So. Oh yeah. It's, the, it's a very powerful thing. <laughs> okay. So here's another one. Green Warriors. True or false? The majority of people over 50 in the U.S. have fatty liver, which can lead to cognitive decline. Mm, okay. True or false? Type in your answers. What's your guess? Go ahead, Dr. Rogers. Tell us about this. Yep. The majority of people got fatty liver. I can tell you, if you see an ultrasound requisition that says elevated LFTs, that means liver function tests, you don't even need to look at the films. You know they have fatty liver. I, I'll tell you, that's about 99% accurate. So many people have fatty liver is not even funny. They'll come in for all sorts of other reasons. Like, let's say, follow up for kidney stones, nephrolithiasis. You can bet they probably have fatty liver, okay? Um, and, and that's a little bit of a, of a joke and a connection in the sense that a lot of the risk factors for causing fatty liver are the same for producing kidney stones. These are sort of the Western chronic diseases. They kind of have a tendency to all go together. But um, the sadness and the problem with fatty liver is fatty liver, I think of it as kind of being like diabetes of the liver. Once you've accumulated a lot of fat in the liver, the liver loses its ability to accurately sense blood glucose level, and it tends to keep on running gluconeogenesis, producing glucose and releasing it into the blood. So it's bad to have fatty liver. It's, it's, it's just one further step along the pathway of diabetes, and diabetes is one of the most common causes of cognitive impairment. Lots of diabetics, they don't understand what's going on. Typical diabetics say, everything's under control. It's under control. And I'm like, they're taking their pill, whatever they were told to take, and they're not really changing their diet and lifestyle. And they tend to have very poor outcomes. You know, most of the diabetics I talk to over 60, they are cognitively really slow and they don't have good outcomes. So it's, it's a good idea. Fix your diet as much as you can. And then if you still can't get everything optimized, then maybe you take a pill. But don't just jump to a pill and not do anything. That's, that's the, a stupid thing to do. Yeah, but unfortunately, a lot of the people that have these conditions have cognitive impairment, so they can't make uh, decisions for themselves. It's, it's almost like they would need an advocate to, to, that wasn't cognitively impaired to help them make the correct medical decisions. Okay. All right. So we're going to talk about something a little bit different here, but still on the topic. 
Okay, Green Warriors, try this one. True or false, one way to avoid cognitive decline is to avoid inhaling anything that smells bad. Okay, they're going to type in their answers. Go ahead, Dr. Rogers. Yeah, in general, something smells bad, it's bad for you. I mean, you got a nose for a reason. You should trust it. If it tells you something's unpleasant, smells bad, there's probably something bad about it. And the relevance also is that your nose is connected to sort of like your smell center in your brain, entorhinal cortex. And there's a guy by the name of Gary Lynch from, uh, you know, what are these um, colleges out in California that's really good with neuroscience. And his feeling was that that's probably where our brain comes from the human free association cortex from the sense of smell and the pre and the other mammals theoretically i mean we can get all the controversy about evolution but the, the point i'm saying is if i were to take let's say a pen and i would write something okay a b c d e that's a very precise thing over here i'm over here i'm over here there's not a lot of flow to it what i mean by that is you can freely associate this is the smell of my girlfriend this is the smell of my dog this is the smell of dinner tonight, whatever. The point is the entorhinal cortex for associating smells can handle anything. And I think that what they think is that the evolutionary biologist is that building upon the, the entorhinal cortex is how we built up our entire sense of free association that we use. The way we map the world in cognitive space is through metaphors, through comparison, through analogies. Whatever you learn new, it's you know it now because you've compared it to what you already know and you put it into a category. So what the reason I'm getting all that is that the entorhinal cortex is very valuable to you for your brain, for your thinking, and it relates right into your hippocampus, your memory center. And where this also comes to play is let's talk about deodorant, okay, your armpits. All right, the typical average person, you know, they sort of been brainwashed that they should put deodorant on in the morning, okay? Me personally, I think it's stupid. And the reason I say that is the deodorant's got aluminum in it, okay, that, plug, that plugs up your sweat pores, but you got shared lymphatics between the breast and the upper outer quadrant, the armpit and the upper outer quadrant of the breast. So when you put aluminum in there, it's a metalloestrogen, stimulates proliferation of the breast ductal cells. It increases your risk of breast cancer. Back in around 1920s, there's about 30% of breast cancer was upper outer quadrant. Now it's about 60%. And I think aluminum is a major contributor to it. Not only do you have the aluminum in there, you also tend to have um, estrogenic preservatives, you know, like power benzoic acids, for example. And you're just putting them right into your axilla, shared lymphatics with the breast. Plus, what a lot of people do, they shave first. And then that increases transdermal absorption, okay? So how does that become relevant? Well, it becomes relevant for a couple of reasons. Number one, a lot of people spray. And if you spray it, you'll often catch a whiff. Well, if you catch a whiff, that means it's going into your nose. It's going into the olfactory nerve. That means it's going to your entorhinal cortex, okay? You're, you're giving, you know, aluminum the highway into your brain. It's a neurotoxin. Stupid, okay? And a lot of other things that smell bad, paints, glues, adhesives, for example, they're what's called circa inhibitors. Circa stands for S-E-R-C-A. S is for sarcoplasm, and that really relates to muscle. Most cells store calcium in the, in the next two letters, ER, endoplasmic reticulum, and then there's a pump, calcium ATPase, so circa. Sarcoplasm, endoplasmic reticulum, calcium ATPase. And the point is you inhibit that. Things that smell bad, paints, glues, adhesives tend to inhibit that. And that's for pumping calcium out of the cytoplasm. When calcium is high in the cytoplasm, that's like the on-off switch uh, for a cell. So what's happening is you're maintaining chronically elevated calcium within your cytoplasms with lots of these things that smell bad, and you're, you're potentially overacting, overactivating the cell, which you don't want to do. Um, a cell, and by the way, this is the Peter Rogers theory of dementia here we're, we're getting into. You've got a baseline metabolic activity of a neuron, and you have a baseline blood supply, okay? They have to be coupled. That's called neurovascular coupling, that the blood supply, oxygen, and glucose delivery matches the metabolic rate. Well, the more you start doing things to widen this gap, the more likely that neuron is going to die. So, for example, let's say you 
you have a sarcoplasm endoplasmic reticulum circle inhibitor. You're going to increase the metabolic activity. So this neuron is going to have increased metabolic activity. Now, let's say you have a lot of dietary sodium, vasoconstrictor. You constrict your arteries. You're going to deliver less oxygen and glucose air. So this gap is getting a little wider. Let's say you eat lots of saturated fat on your meal, like a cheese pizza. That's going to drop oxygen delivery to the tissues about 15%. So now you're widening this gap some more, okay? Let's say you have aspartame. That's going to be an excitatory uh, neurotransmitter effect. It's called an excitotoxin. That increases the metabolic activity of this neuron as well. So now this gap's getting wider. Uh, let's say you have caffeine. That increases it more. Stress does too. So you're, the more you widen this gap between oxygen and glucose delivery and the metabolic activity of that neuron, the more that neuron is at risk to just go into apoptosis and die. So what most people are doing is they want, oh, well, what pill should I take or something? There's no magic pill, okay? There's a whole bunch of things. And, you know, there's literally like at least 30 significant neurotoxins. And a lot of people are exposing themselves just out of ignorance to like 20 or more of them. And so what you want to do is learn them. And they're most of them, almost all of them. You can avoid them, just avoid them and be on your way. Um, so uh, that's, I call that's the neurovascular uncoupling theory of dementia by me, Peter Rogers, MD. Okay, well, we'll have to remember all these different theories because you have more than one that you've um, uncovered and discovered. And when you're talking about the sense of smell, it, it made me think about how some people who have had viruses or maybe even it's associated with age because of the health conditions often lose their sense of smell. And and I've heard that, uh, and, and I've seen at least with people that I know that have had that happen to them as a result of the virus, not because of uh, age-related diseases, that if they take uh, essential oils and they just hold it, you know, far away from their nose, but close enough that they can smell the smell, that they could say, okay, this is rosemary, and they would smell it. Meanwhile, they wouldn't smell the rosemary. But in their mind, they're thinking, I remember what rosemary smells like. And they re retraining the brain. I don't know if you've heard about this method of, you know, and, or, you know, I know what vanilla smells like and, and, and so forth. And they just get different familiar smells. And then oftentimes they can regain their sense of smell that was taken away from them from a, a particular virus or so. I don't know if you've, you're familiar with that, but I just thought it was very interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. And yeah, I do. I know some people can have a diminishment of their sense of smell from a viral infection. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's go on with the next question. And okay. I like this one. And we also have uh, a guest on the show that we've had in the past and she's listening now. So I think she's going to enjoy it too. Uh, exercise has no effect on improving brain function. True or false? Okay. Type in your guest and Dr. Rogers, tell us about it. Yeah, Voltaire had asked the question, why do animals have brains, but plants do not? Because animals move. And as soon as you move, you need a brain, okay? So first of all, you got to make a value judgment. I want to go towards the food, towards the fruit uh, tree over there. I want to avoid a bunch of coyotes over there that doesn't look too safe. Um, then you have to navigate. There's how I get to the fruit tree. You have to avoid obstacles in your path. Um, you have to have a memory to remember how to get back where you came from. Uh, so you have to have a brain when you move and, and a lot of other things come into play. For example, what is the purpose of a brain? Why do we have brains at all besides this movement? So we could survive to walk down a path in a forest, a jungle, my cushion's falling off in a forest, a jungle or a prairie and to survive. Okay. 
So the brain is very much tuned into survival. And because of that, imagine you're an animal. Animals are always in the wild, okay? As soon as you walk down a new path, you had better figure out that environment very fast or you're dead, okay? If you don't know where the safety is, where the danger is, you're going to get eaten by a snake or, you know, lion or tigers and bears and all this stuff. So you have to learn that environment very quick. So what does that mean? It means that exercise makes you alert. Exercise makes you smarter. You probably had this experience where you're reading a book and you're starting to space out and get tired or bored and you read the paragraph and you don't remember what you just read at the bottom of the paragraph. A lot of times you get up, you stand up, you start walking around and you'll be able to understand it. I've done that tons of times. Okay, so you have to be alert and with it when you're starting to go around. And because the animal has to memorize an environment very quickly, it activates your mind. So exercise causes increased BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, okay? So that grows new neurons. You form new synapses. So when you learn something, you're taking a new thing and you're associating it with something you already know. So that's synaptogenesis, or you can also have synaptic augmentation for something that's already partially established, but brain-derived neurotrophic factor helps you do that. Grow new synapses and also grow new neurons, neurogenesis, all right? In addition, if that area of neuronal activity is going to become more active, like you're learning how to play guitar, okay? You're going to need the neurons related to your hands and comprehension of that to be more active. They're going to need more blood supply. That's angiogenesis. Um, they're going to need, if you're playing long musical pieces that take energy and go on for a while, you're going to need more glycogen storage in those areas. So that's glycogen supercompensation, you know, largely uh, located in the astrocyte, but you're going to have glycogen supercompensation. All right. Um, you're also going to want more energy for those activities. Those neurons will produce more mitochondria. So that's called mitochondrial biogenesis. So all of those things, BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, mitochondrial biogenesis, glycogen compensation, and angiogenesis, they all happen from exercise. So uh, neurogenesis as well with BDNF. So it does a lot to help. It's one of the best things you can do to keep your brain. Yeah, there's more and more evidence about that. And, and there's so many other reasons to exercise and People, it seems that people try to avoid it and make excuses, and I'm trying to promote it here on our channel, and I'm loving the fact that you're giving us even more reasons to... Yeah, actually, uh, I, got, I, got one more, excuse me, I got one more good thing with that. Yes, please. Um, the story of the sea squirt. The sea squirt, when it's a, when it's a juvenile, it swims around and it has a brain, like it was like a little tadpole, okay? When it's an adult, though, it attaches to a rock... And it becomes a filter feeder. Its brain is reabsorbed. It's recycled. If you just sit on your on the couch watching TV, you don't need a brain. So I'm when you talk about the sea squirt, I'm imagining a lot of people that like to play video games. And I don't know if they still have it that way, but when I saw them, they had a, a wire going from the controller to the to the monitor or to the TV or something. So it kind of <laughs> It kind of reminds me of the sea squirt attaching itself to something. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, well, that's very true. So there you have it in nature telling us what we need to know. Okay, so speaking about things that we uh, do, let's see. This is something totally different but also related. True or false, playing soccer puts youth at risk for cognitive decline. Okay, Green Warriors. Tell us what you think the answer is. Okay, go ahead, Dr. Rogers. Yeah, I think soccer's stupid. Uh, I say that because, now don't get me wrong, I think running around, kicking the ball is good. But unfortunately, um, they still allow heading the ball in most programs. And that's what I have a problem with. Kicking the ball and running around, that is good. But hitting the ball with your head, that's absolutely stupid. That's like volunteering to get punched in the head. That's head trauma. Head trauma causes brain damage. It lowers IQ. 
I knew a lady doctor, her daughter was a superstar of the college. She had to drop out of uh, college because she had so much brain damage from hitting the soccer ball with her head. What does the coach do in a soccer practice? He stands in the corner, does a corner kick, kicks it to the player standing and they get, they line up to take their turn and hitting the ball, the head hit into the goal. Completely stupid. Volunteering to be punching that. You got kids, a big, strong man in the corner, kicking a ball hard and little kids hitting a ball at their head. I mean, you want to give me a recipe for brain damage. Why not just punch them in the head? I mean, it's stupid because I know a lot of moms. I know physician moms. They all sign their kids up for soccer. I'm like, you really want to do that? Don't you think that's stupid? Okay. Just like I think deodorant's stupid. You walk in a room, you say, hey, how you doing? You know, sniff each other's armpits. Don't be so conformist and stupid. Use your brain. Think about it. Well, I think that, that people who are on a plant-based diet don't have as much body odor as people who are on a meat-based diet, I think that, and processed foods, I think that there may be some odors that emanate from people, but, but it's better to be, be safe and healthy than to worry about those things. And, it, and if you changed your diet, you probably wouldn't have <laughs> as many odors to, to worry about. Yeah. Plus also yeah. men, I can tell you, I've had about a million conversations with other guys about women. You're attracted to her or you're not. I mean, the main thing that guys think is not attractive is a woman's fat. Okay, it's just a fact. I've never had a single guy tell me, oh, I'm attracted to her, but she smells. I never had a guy tell me that. I, I, I think that's pretty much of a non-issue, okay? By the time you're smelling your armpits, you're pretty close anyways. You've already made up your mind you want her or you don't. So I don't think it's a, it's a, it's going to change the issue at all. So why, why do that to yourself? Okay, well, we're talking about uh, being overweight. Why don't we go with our next question? True or false? Being overweight can cause cognitive impairment. Okay, Green Warriors, type in your guess. All right, Dr. Rogers. Yeah, being fat's bad. Um, and a lot of people say, well, I can't help being fat. It's just my genetics. That's, that's actually not true. Because like, I'll have patients and guys will be a train wreck, you know, 55 years old. He's had open heart surgery. He's got cancer. He's going for a biopsy. He's got diabetic foot, all these problems. And I'll say, you know, you might want to try improving your diet. He's like, oh, no, doc, it's just genetic. Everybody in my family has this. You know, my sister went for open heart surgery. My brother went for open heart surgery. And I'm like, did it ever occur to you? You're maybe all eating the same diet. So most so-called genetic disease is just because they all have the same bad habits, okay? So anyways, getting back to cognitive impairment. Obesity is strongly associated with having high blood pressure, which we spoke about as the number one risk factor for having strokes, okay? And then, like, what's the number two risk factor? Uh, diabetes. Well, guess what? Obesity is strongly associated with uh, having cognitive impairment. Okay, I can tell you, if I looked at a 1,000 brains, 90% of them would be diabetic and hypertensive, both. And then another uh, 5% would be either or. Uh, so those are the most common things associated with cognitive impairment is diabetes and hypertension. And they're both strongly associated with obesity. So then people say, well, what can I do? I've tried for years. I just can't do it. Well, look at China, you know, when they're eating rice, primarily 85, 95% of their calories, white rice before 1970 or something, a billion out of a billion are skinny. Look at a Bruce Lee movie. Okay. Every single extra, they're all skinny. The only fat guy is Bolo because he's taking steroids, you know, like a sumo guy. So People are skinny when they eat a starch-based diet because it's like a polymer of fiber surrounded by, I mean, it's polymer of glucose surrounded by fiber. It's low caloric density, stretches your stomach, early satisfaction of hunger, goes into your intestinal tract. The fiber's peeled off slowly, so you get a gradual release, absorption of glucose from your gut to your blood, and you stay in the normal blood glucose zone for a prolonged amount of time. The point being is you satisfy hunger with a relatively, the fewest number of calories. So low-fat starches, potatoes, sweet potatoes, rice, all 1% of cal white rice, 1% of calories from fat. Those populations are skinny. 
Yes, exactly. It's so simple and, and it should be so obvious, but we've been entrenched in a lot of uh, commercials and, and big businesses. Okay. Okay. So here's an interesting one, Green Warriors. Cataracts and falling is a sign of cognitive decline in the elderly. Okay. What do you think it is? And Dr. Rogers, tell us about that. Yeah, I can tell you most of the demented patients I look at, they've had at least one cataract surgery, if not both of them. Okay. You know, dairy contributes to cataract surgery uh, on cataract risk of formation. Um, and I can tell you most of the patients, they got poor dentition, you know, bad teeth, um, diabetes, hypertension, and at least one side cataract surgery. Quite often it's both. Um, as far as falling, falling is very common that that's a typical way for old people to head out their last like three years of life falls and the falls just keep becoming more frequent and then dead. Um, so a couple things about falls in the elder, we talked about the brain being more for movement than it is for thinking. You know, when we talk about the brain, Oh, that person's smart. They can do calculus or something like that. No, the science, there's something called Moravik's paradox. Moravik's paradox is the idea that the hard problem is simple and simple problems hard. And that comes from the fact that they could make a calculator to do our computer to do uh, calculus back in the 1950s. It wasn't that big of a deal, what we would think to be a great intellectual achievement. But they can only recently start making robots anywhere close to moving like a coordinated human. So it takes far more neuronal resources to move in coordinated fashion than it does to handle simple, you know, thinking problems that we would consider thinking and speaking, for example. So what's my point? People have this global uh, lack of brain perfusion for the reasons we talked about, atherosclerosis, hypertension, diabetes, overtreated hypertension, they all go together. And they just are randomly losing neurons all over the place. There was an evolutionary biologist named Ehrlich who came up with what he called the rivet popping uh, metaphor, whereby if you just randomly pop rivets off a big jet airplane, eventually it wouldn't work so well. Okay. Oh, that's a, sorry about that. I got this phone in here. This is my kid's phone, I think. One second. Okay, so while Dr. Rogers is getting his phone, please, if you have any questions for Dr. Rogers, please feel free to uh, type it in the comments. Okay, so getting back to falls, I also had a friend, a neurologist, leading neurologist. She started a clinic, a falls clinic, okay? And I said, how's your falls clinic going? You know, I talked to her about a year later. She goes, nah, it's really just a dementia clinic. Uh, so, you know, it's a bad sign when a person's falling a lot. Now, don't get me wrong. There can be other reasons besides cognitive impairment. But typically, these patients are progressively going down the tubes and they have more and more falls. And, uh, you know, they don't they don't usually bleed. I can tell you probably about because it's always patient fell, rule out bleed when you look at their head CT. But, gosh, it's probably about one out of 40 has a bleed. OK, the vast majority of them, they're not bleeding. I mean, head trauma can cause cognitive impairment as well. But the real sign to me is it's an indicator that they're cognitively impaired, the fact they're falling. Interesting. And for those of you that are not familiar with Dr. Rogers and what he does, one of the things he does do quite often and for decades has looked at brain scans. And so he's very familiar with, with them and, and what he can. And that's how he one of the reasons why he can draw these conclusions. OK. OK. So here's an interesting one. True or false. Eating healthy fats protects the brain from cognitive decline. Okay, now, that's a tough, okay, Dr. Rogers, he, he can't wait. That's a tough one. You're, you're, you're putting some tough questions out there. The reason I say that's a tough one is there there's different ways of looking at this, okay? You know, first question will come out is why do women have big butts, okay? Why do women have big butts compared to men? 
because when you're walking around, it's an energy efficient location to store omega-3 fats. Our ancestors are worried about starving to death, okay? I think that's why women have smaller shoulders because they don't want to be carrying extra body weight because they're always afraid they're going to starve to death and they want to have enough calories available that they can have a baby and the baby will have the energy it needs to grow and survive, okay? So a baby does need a lot of omega-3 fats. They've got more double bonds in them such that they kind of bend. You have a plasma membrane. Let's say it's your plasma membrane, all right? Let me see if I can get some. And you have the, the fatty acid tails around your phospholipid. So a phospholipid is, let me just give you like a, an example here. Let's say this red would be the phosphate and these yellows would be the fatty acid tails. A saturated fat is comes straight down. And so these will actually interdigitate these two fatty acids. These markers are the fatty acids. Whereas if you have a... Um, a, let's say a PUFA, a polyunsaturated fatty acid, omega-3, it'll have all these double bonds. It'll push, and let's say this is it. It's going to push the other fat away. It's going to fluidize the plasma cell membrane. And a more fluidized plasma cell membrane more rapidly conducts a neuronal impulse and action potential. So you want a lot of omega-3 fats in your eyes, your retina, and in your brain for rapid, fast neuronal conduction to make you smarter. That's all well and good. But it's also the case that we can remember stuff from our childhood. And the reason we can remember stuff that happened as a child many, many years ago. By the way, I'm about 60 years, I'm 60 years old. Okay. You can remember stuff that happened from your childhood. It's because the neurons don't turn over much. You're not talking about a stem cell in your gut that's constantly changing. So you need all those omega-3s in the beginning, but you don't need as many as you get older. And there's a lot of omega-3s in plants. And I know there's some controversy about this. There's some people saying you need lots. There's other ones saying you don't. And I don't know if you really want me to get into that topic. I could if you want, but I don't know if you really well, want me to. You know, we're here to learn, and you, you've you researched a lot, and you've looked at a lot of different studies. So let's hear what I you personally, my impression is, I think we probably get enough from eating our plant foods. We get the precursors like alpha-linolenic acid. Um, I also think that one of the most poorly recognized things is that the best fat is fiber. I know that sounds weird, but I think that's the truth. So a lot of people, you know, say, oh, well, fiber is not a fat. It's a carbohydrate. Actually, it's actually glucose just with an unusual connection between them such that our gut enzymes can't digest them. But our bacterial enzymes can. OK, so what happens is when you eat fiber, the fiber goes down your gut, it goes out to your distal small bowel where there's some bacteria and then a lot more in your colon, for example. They'll take those bacteria and they will convert them to short chain fatty acids, two carbon acetates, three carbon propionates. Those go up through your portal vein and they go to your liver and then your liver makes them into whatever it needs to make or it ships them out to wherever they need to go. OK, then they make four carbon uh, fatty acids, the butyrates, the butyric acid. And those are used. Two thirds of them is the energy for your gut lining to maintain tight junctions and prevent leaky gut. Oh, my shirt fell. That's my my backdrop. My backdrop scene. I think I look better with it on here. Let me put it back up here. All yeah. Right. So. So it's an expensive backdrop. All right. So anyways, I'm um, getting back to my story. So what I'm trying to say is if you don't have adequate fiber, you can't maintain your tight junctions. You get leaky gut. So um, and, and you get. Yeah, my my camera went a little bit out of focus there. I don't know what I could do to fix you that. Maybe put your finger toward the toward the camera and then bring it to your finger toward you. And now let's see. Bring it towards you. See, if it'll focus there. Yeah, I'll try out there my, my ear protectors. Let's try this. <laughs> yeah. And then see if it'll now focus on you. Hmm. Hmm, or I can go, oh. step out and then come back. Let's see if I yeah. step away. We'll see. All right. All right. Now let's see if it'll work. Yeah. It's a little oh, better. It's a little better. Yeah. I think it's learning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyways, 
that's that I think is is a good source of fat. Get your fiber because you don't you don't really get that many calories from it, but it gives you what you need. Um, and so the big controversy is there's one group of plant experts who say we need to get all these omega threes. You need to eat nuts. You need to eat seeds and all this. And then there's another group like McDougal group who says basically you got enough omega threes and just the natural plant food you eat. You don't need to worry about it. You can forget about it. You don't need to supplement with anything. So those are the two schools of thought on that one. Right. It's interesting to me because I remember that uh, it used to be a lot of talk about, oh, on a vegan diet, you can't get enough protein You have unless you have a complete protein and you eat all these foods and combine them. And then later on, it was learned that your body will take all the different amino acids and combine them and store them and put them together when, when it's needed. So it almost sounds like the same type of mechanism where your body knows what to do and it takes all the different uh, things from the, the nutrients from the foods and, and all the things from the foods if you eat it properly and stores them in different areas and then puts them together on an as needed basis, it almost sounds like. Yeah, I, I can also share with you what you're, I agree with what you just said. And I read, you know, Nathan Pritikin pretty extensively. And by the way, when I read Nathan Pritikin, I feel like I'm talking to myself, okay? The way his logic works, okay? And he did a pretty exhaustive study of the literature and he came to the conclusion it is impossible to be too low in fat was his conclusion you could feed patients less than one percent fat there's two there were two good studies on that where they were fed controlled diets and the patients did quite well you could feed them and also it's impossible to be too low in protein in his opinion and, and my my experience can concurs with that uh so let me explain what that's all about you could feed these patients starving trying to bring them back to health two and a half percent protein and they would do quite well um, then you start looking at sweet potatoes. Look at the Papua New Guinea population. They're eating 93% of their calories and they're eating sweet potatoes, only four and a half percent protein in a sweet potato. And they're doing quite well. Human breast milk, five to 6% uh, protein in human breast milk. And that's the most rapid phase of growth in a person's life. And that's enough. Okay. Five to 6%. So we really don't, it's, it's basically just about impossible to eat less than that, you know, other than sweet potatoes. And those guys are robust, strong guys. Those Papua New Guinea men. Okay. Um, and so what I'm saying is, I think it's kind of a non-issue. People are putting their focus on the wrong thing. You're not low in protein. You're not low in fat. What you're low in typically is potassium, magnesium, and fiber because you don't need enough plants. That's the typical American person. Yes, that's that's so interesting because a lot, a lot of people who are plant-based, they're very aware of the fiber, but they don't often think about the other elements that, that they're enjoying and, and benefiting from. And so it's good that, you know, again, you, you're doing all this research and you're looking at research and you're just putting it all together to, to, to make it, you know, it almost reminds me of my husband loves to cook and we're plant-based and he'll, he'll look at different recipes and he'll never find one that he really likes. So he'll just look at res many recipes for the same type of dish and then synthesize them and, and make something that, that he thinks makes a lot more sense. So it's almost like that's, that's what you're doing, but you're doing it at a of course, a deeper level with all the research that you're interested in. Okay, so here's another thing that we can think about. And I love how we're, we're bringing up all these different elements because, as you said, people just say, just tell me what to do. Give me a pill and it's and it's done and I'm fixed. And, and what we're learning from you and what we're going to learn again from the, the other questions that are coming up is it's just not a one easy thing that you have to do many different things, but also, of course, if you adopt a whole food plant-based diet that's low fat, that will also be something that, that will surely help. 
Okay, so the next one is uh, true or false. Too much iron can lead to cognitive decline. And I, I think this is a very important one. I mean, they all were important, but this is something interesting to learn about. So Green Warriors, what do you think? Dr. Rogers, tell us what, what you think. Yeah, I think our ancestors, you know, it was harder for them to get iron than it is for us nowadays. You know, the main person who's iron deficient will be like um, a girl, a teenage girl when she hits puberty. Because all of a sudden she starts growing fast, so her iron demands are higher, and she starts menstruating, so she's losing iron from her body. So they, they often used to call it the disease of virgins. Okay, but in, you know, in the modern world, people are often eating meat, and especially like red meat that's got lots of iron in it. Plus, they also iron fortify foods. So those tend to have lots of iron. So as a matter of fact, most men in a Western country, they're becoming iron overloaded starting in their 20s once their growth stops. And women um, in Western countries tend to become iron overloaded as soon as they hit menopause. And it just starts going up and up the iron accumulation. And the significance is the more excessive iron you have in your body, that's bad. You don't want it because... Uh, you'll be more predisposed to leaking more iron into your blood, so to speak. Um, normally, iron is always kept sequestered. The way to think of iron is think of iron as being like a fire in your house. You want a fire in the stove to cook your food. You want a fire in the fireplace to warm your hands and stuff. But you don't want fire anywhere else. That's what iron is like because iron is a transitional metal, meaning it has a variable valence. Most common valences are two plus or three plus. And then iron can start cycling backwards and forwards. So let's just imagine these are two molecules of iron and they'll start cycling back and forth between Fe2 plus Fe3 plus, Fe2 plus Fe3 plus. And while they're doing that, they're handing off electrons and those electrons get handed off to molecules containing oxygen that can be converted into free radicals. A free radical molecule is one with an unpaired electron in its outer orbital. And those can, it's like bouncing a super ball around, you know, in a china shop and around a glass shop. It can start breaking stuff. You don't want that. So the, the other thing too, the, think of, the way it works is, imagine you wanted to walk 100 miles in the desert. Unless you brought food and water with you, you couldn't do it because you can't go 100 miles in the desert because there's no water by yourself, just with, without any uh, supplies on you. So the point I'm saying is that's how our body prevents infections. We sequester iron in our cells, in ferritin, in the blood, in transferrin. We don't leave it free. And we do that because bacteria need iron to replicate. So we normally try to keep iron really low. So what I'm trying to say is these Americans who keep on accumulating more and more iron, they start hitting a tipping point where more and more iron is being leaked into the blood and also leaking out in other locations like the mitochondria. And it starts ferrous redox cycling and throwing off electrons to form free radicals and they just do damage. That's what's called oxidative stress. Oxidative stress means you've got more oxidants compared to antioxidants. So normally if you eat a plant-based diet, you'll have a lot of antioxidants and not so many oxidants. You're in good shape. But you start accumulating all this iron, you start going the wrong way. And then that random oxidative stress starts damaging things. So you don't want that. Another thing too about antioxidants is think about a plant. Imagine you, a human, and a plant. We're sitting in the middle of a field and it's Super hot outside, 110 degrees, the sun is bearing down and you go, man, this is too hot. You go walk under a tree or into some form of shelter. The plant can't do that. The only way the plant can protect itself is with chemicals called antioxidants that protect it from the harsh heat of the sun. And when you eat the plant, you get the antioxidants. But the animal, when you eat an animal, it's already used up its antioxidants, almost all of them. So you get almost none. So that's why you got to eat your plants to get those antioxidants. And they protect you from oxidative stress. And they also are part of your immune system to help protect you from cancer.
Yeah, I think that that's all important to know because so, so many people supplement and oftentimes some of the supplements may contain iron and, and they're thinking that these are things that are good and it may not necessarily be a good idea to supplement. Yeah, I think a lot of those multivitamins especially are bogus, okay? They'll, they'll have iron in it. You don't want that. They'll have other things in there you don't want. They'll have like a fake version of vitamin E and then they'll glue it all together and, and put titanium dioxide in there and stuff. You don't want that. Use a food dye in the paint that's a mitochondrial inhibitor. Throw a fungal inhibitor in there that's also a mitochondrial inhibitor. Right. Yeah. And these are the things that we don't we don't often think about because it's it's not we're not educated. And that's what we're trying to do today is to, to learn about all these things because we want we want to try to prevent the cognitive decline. Okay, here's another one. Okay, Green Warriors, true or false, food dyes can cause brain dysfunction. Hmm. Type in your guess. All right, Dr. Rogers, what's the answer? Yeah, I, I think food dyes, I know they can cause brain dysfunction in several different ways. And the other thing I was gonna say, like, what's a good rule of thumb that I go by? Basically, try to live like Adam and Eve, but keep your indoor heating and plumbing. Simplicity empowers a person because you don't waste time, energy, or money on things that are trivial and needless. All right. So that's one thing I like. So getting back to food dyes, some food dyes are mitochondrial inhibitors. That's not good. Some food dyes have been associated with attention deficit disorder, hyperactive behavior, anxiety. Some of them are circa inhibitors. We were just talking about that, the calcium pump, the pump calcium from the cytoplasm into the endoplasmic reticulum in a neuron. So it can more precisely regulate its cytoplasm uh, concentrations of calcium, which is what it wants to do because that's how it controls its activity level. So, yeah, all this processed food. Processed food is terrible because the whole point of a processed food, what do they want? First of all, they want it to stay um not to spoil on a shelf a long time. So that's why they put all the, the antifungal inhibitors in there. Well, the fungal inhibitors also inhibit your mitochondria, okay? Anything that kills a eukaryotic cell is also going to be harmful to your cells. So you got the fungal inhibitors to give long shelf life. Then they want to entice you. So they make it colorful so it looks like a fruit, so you want to eat it. But with the food dyes, they're quite often toxic to your mitochondria or toxic to your cells in some other way. So that's bad. Okay, and then they have to put flavor enhancers in their MSG, excitotoxin. Uh, it just goes on and on. Processed food is something you really want to avoid. I recommend don't eat any of it. You don't have to. I mean, the only thing that's even mildly processed that I eat is single ingredient, you know, organic oatmeal. That's it. Or yeah. quinoa, but really rare to eat quinoa, quinoa, however you say it. Oh, yeah, quinoa. <laughs> which is quinoa. <laughs> but... Yeah, I, and I think about how, especially in the United States, these processed foods and, and almost everything that is being sold, they, they talk about how it's generally regarded as safe and that they're waiting to see if somebody can prove that it's not safe. And of course, that doesn't really help us anyway, because they proved that BPA wasn't safe, right? Yeah, I think, I think regulation is basically a joke. Don't ever hope that the regulators are going to protect you. Learn how to protect yourself by being careful about what you eat and learning something about basic toxicology. And I would also say basic toxicology, I think the plant-based community is screwed up in the sense that there's a tendency to say, all that matters is that you eat plant foods and everything be fine. No, it's not that simple. You should learn some basic toxicology and learn how to avoid these things uh, because I think that's under-recognized. Like I also think that's why a lot of people are fat. Uh, they're trying to lose weight. They're trying to eat well. But if there's a lot of estrogenic chemicals in there, estrogen chemicals are fat storage hormones, you know, that, that go up tremendously when a woman's pregnant. And they're telling the woman's body, you need to gain weight because the baby could need that for energy. So 
you're, you're sabotaging yourself if you're eating, if you're exposing yourself to a lot of these estrogenic fat inducing chemicals without realizing it, which goes back to lots of things. All these personal care products. We talked about deodorant. They've all got estrogenic preservatives in them. Colognes, perfumes, shampoos, uh, conditioners, you name it. So my advice would be go easy on that stuff. Minimize it. I don't have anything. I don't use anything except I have one little bar of transparent soap, the simplest soap you could get in my bathroom. That's it. I don't even shampoo. Not that I got much hair, but for what it's worth, that's what I do. Okay. Yeah. And it, it is something that, that we just have to really be more aware of. And I, I have seen lately, uh, apparently there's some law that's passed that the tobacco companies have to post different warning signs in addition to the ones that are on the packet about how secondhand smoke or the addiction qualities of the nicotine and they're posting it on, on inside doorways when you go into a convenience store or, or and things like that. And every time I see these signs, I think to myself, but yet it's being sold on the shelf, right? So what else is being sold to us that we consume, not necessarily smoking, but eating or drinking? What else is being sold that nobody has yet determined that they want to put a sign up about it? So yeah, I, I agree with you. We just really have to minimize the, the processed foods that we're eating. And, and, if it, and, and the best thing, of course, would be to definitely just avoid them altogether and we can live a much better life. Okay, so here's another one. True or false, fluoride can promote cognitive impairment. Okay, Green Warriors, what do you think about that? True or false? Dr. Rogers, what's the answer? Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's in the category of dementogen. It lowers IQ uh, in children, especially like the youngest children, they have less blood-brain barrier uh, formation. So their blood-brain barrier is more permeable. More stuff can get from the blood into the brain. Um, in older persons, they also will tend to have areas of blood-brain barrier breakdown because of diabetes, hypertension, and all these other things. But even if a person's perfectly healthy, you know, young adult, middle age, they still got circumventricular organs, which have um, a lack of a blood-brain barrier because they're chem chemosensors. They sense the chemicals in the blood. So no matter what, it's bad. It also inhibits mitochondrial electron transport. I think it's complex four, uh, lowers IQ. In addition, if you look at medications, they very routinely add fluoride to a medication because it bonds very tightly. It'll replace a hydrogen and it'll have a very tight grip. It's got a very strong electronegativity. And so the point I'm saying is that's how you get drugs into the brain. Okay. Look at Prozac, you know, uh, fluoxetine. Okay. And if you start looking at the names of drugs, not their popular selling name, but their chemical name, you will see fluoride over and over and over again. Uh, so all of like fluoroquinolone antibiotics, those can cause, those can, can affect cognitive function. People usually aren't on them very long, but yeah, bottom line, what would I say? If possible, move somewhere where you don't have that in your water would be the best. If you have to have it in your water, I would recommend have a whole house carbon filter to remove all the estrogenic chemicals um, and a lot of other things and the chlorine once it reaches your house. And then I would also have a kitchen reverse osmosis filter. Kitchen reverse osmosis filter can remove the fluoride. Um, you can also remove it with distillation, but distillation is much more cumbersome compared to, let's say, having an under-the-sink reverse osmosis filter in your kitchen. Right. So what do you think about how they add it to toothpaste? And, and that oh, I think the whole thing is stupid. I think yeah. the whole thing is stupid. But people have to remember, corporations run based on profit. No one cares about you. If you think people care about you, you're, you're in trouble because you're going to get chumped all the time. You have to realize they're trying to make a profit. I mean, look what they say with the, with the toothpaste. They say, you know, 
Only put a pea-sized mount there. Don't swallow anything. If they inadvertently swallow it, call poison control, okay? <laughs> Give me a break. You know, kids are going to swallow some of that. I don't care what you tell them. So I think it's a bad idea. I don't, I don't think you should ever use fluoride for anything. It doesn't belong in the human body. Yeah. I cha challenge my green warriors to go and if they're using this type of toothpaste or mouthwash to, to read read the label because you're actually going to find what Dr. <laughs> Dr. Rogers talked about just now. And, and that might be a, a big shock because we don't normally read labels on, on toothpaste and mouthwash. Okay. So we have another question. Oh, actually one, one more thing too. The fact that it's toxic in the mouth, it's sort of it, it, it removes the bacteria from the back of the tongue. And those bacteria are needed also to do the first step in processing nitrates from plants. So you eat your leafy greens, they got nitrates like NO3, then they get converted to nitrites, NO2 by the bacteria in the back of the tongue. So if you're having mouthwash or fluoridated toothpaste, you sort of wipe out those bacteria and you miss that initial step in the conversion of the nitrates from the food, plant foods to nitric oxide eventually in your blood. So you lose that opportunity at systemic nitric oxide causing vasodilation, increased uh, blood perfusion of your entire body. So it's, it's bad for your overall health as well in that sense. Right. Yeah. So we really do have to think about that. And I think I remembered in one of your lectures, you talked about fluoride as far as where, where does it come from? Yeah, a lot of things come from the mountains, you know, and, and, and when they started mining into the mountains, you know, all these discoveries, you can find, you know, gold and silver and you can find aluminum and all this stuff. But a lot of that stuff, maybe it's supposed to stay in the mountain. It don't belong in our bodies. Um, it's not good for our health. Right. So, so was it, did you, I think I recall you saying something about that it was a product of aluminum, the fluoride? Um, I know that there was some, yeah, some aluminum manufacturing, that's sort of like a waste product. And these corporations are smart, you know, instead of having to pay for their waste disposal, they can throw it in the water and make us pay for it like a bunch of chumps. <laughs> it seems that there's a lot of that happening, you know, when I, when I see these uh, powders, these protein powders, these whey protein powders, right? Made out of the whey, the waste product of the, the making the, the cheese, right? Because you have the, the curd and the whey and they take the curd and they make the cheese. And then what do they do with the whey? Well, buying that profit from it and make a protein powder from it instead. So yeah, they're very, very clever. And then they take the spent candies from the candy manufacturers, all the broken pieces, and they sell that to the to the people who are raising the uh, farm animals so that they can eat it and get fat and way more. Okay, so let's see. Um, okay, so we have this one too, which is interesting. True or false, toxins including cooking oil, aluminum, and lead damage brain neurons. Hmm. Okay, Green Warriors, type in your guess, and Dr. Rogers, what's the answer? Yeah, all three of these things are quite toxic to the brain. Lead in particular inhibits mitochondrial electron transport at two different locations. It's a clear neurotoxin. Um, aluminum is also a neurotoxin. Aluminum's mechanisms are more complex. Sort of the definitive author on that subject would be Christopher Exley. Um, cooking oil is also um, toxic to the brain. The cooking oil story is a little more interesting. The physiology mechanism of it is more interesting. There's a Japanese neuroscientist by the name of Tetsumori Yamashima. And Japan, the country had asked him, how come we got so many more people becoming demented compared to the past? Japan had been famous up through, you know, let's say to about 1975, having a lot of long-lived people. The Okinawa population, which is kind of like what Hawaii is to America, that's what uh, Okinawa is in Japan, 
they were famous as being the second longest lived people in the whole world. Okay. Probably the longest lived ever. The data is the Loma Linda population of seventh day Adventists who is their religious reasons. They push towards veganism. Okay. So anyways, um, what happened though is now Japan is eating more and more like Westerners and they have more and more oil in their food. It's very common. They're having fried food. And this guy, Tetsumori Yamashima started studying that in great detail. And he came to the conclusion that the, uh, first of all, when you heat a cooking oil, these are omega-6 cooking oils. When you heat these cooking oils over 200 degrees, they you will convert some of them into what is called hydroxynonanol. Anything that ends in AL is an aldehyde, okay? And hydroxynonanol in particular, non-NON means nine carbons. Okay, anything that's an aldehyde, toxic aldehydes, they're often quite toxic to the human body. All right, and so that would be exogenous from frying food or cooking something with the cooking oil in whatever manner. You're, you're ingesting hydroxynonanol, but even in your body, you can have oxidative stress damaging membranes somewhere in your body. It could be a mitochondrial membrane, it could be a plasma membrane, and you're going to produce some nonanol. But let's just say when you're eating the cooking oil, you're being stupid because you're exposing yourself to that. Well, anyways, his work came to the conclusion, the pathophysiology is a little complicated, but to make a long story short, the hydroxynonanol binds something in your brain cells and your neurons. It binds something called heat shock protein number 70. So HSP70 is how you'll see it abbreviated. Heat shock protein number 70 has an important job. It's what's called a chaperone protein. A chaperone protein helps other proteins to fold correctly after they're synthesized. A chaperone protein also binds to proteins that are sort of damaged, and it helps assist them in being transported to the lysosomes. Lysosome is sort of like the, the garbage dump recycling center of a cell. And they also bind then to the outer membrane of the lysosome and they stabilize it so it doesn't break, it doesn't rupture. Okay, so heat shock proteins are very important, but something strange happens. When hydroxynonanol binds heat shock protein number 70, it makes it attractive to another uh, enzyme called calpane. And calpane then now will be attracted to HSP, heat shock protein, and it will cut heat shock protein, it'll cleave it in half. And that's a big deal because heat shock protein now doesn't work. And when heat shock protein doesn't work, uh, all kinds of problems happen in the cell. I have a picture of it. I actually was going to show this later, depending on how much time we have. The lysosome membrane is no longer stabilized. It ruptures. The lysosome, it's full of acid and all these powerful aggressive chemicals and an enzyme in particular called cathepsin, and it just digests the cell, kills the cell. Okay, so Tetsumori Yamashima came to the conclusion that the number one reason why the incidence of dementia has significantly, relatively rapidly increased in Japan is because they're eating too many cooking oils. And he also came to the conclusion from a bunch of studies he did on monkeys, um, that it's destroying pancreas beta cells and um, uh, contributing to the increased incidence of diabetes. And he also felt that it is damaging the neurons in the hypothalamus, in the arcuate nucleus, which is considered the hunger center for humans in terms of regulating appetite. So what he's basically saying is people are reaching a tipping point where the more they lose neurons in their arcuate nucleus, the less they'll ever be able to control their appetite. So that's why I'm a big believer. You want to get your act together as soon as you can, as fast as you can, and get on with your life. Because the more you stay in bad habits, the more you're drifting into diabetes, hypertension, and becoming cognitively impaired. And as you're cognitively impaired, you're going to have less curiosity, less ability to learn. You're less likely to ever fix yourself and ever get well. And, and the other thing, too, is it's sort of human nature. Just as we were designed to eat a herbivore diet, it's, it's human nature, too, to think like a herbivore. And by that, I mean, a herbivore is sort of a pack animal, or you would call it like a like an antelope, grazing animal. Okay, well, the point I'm saying is, for a herbivore, the safe place to be is the middle of the pack, then a lion can't get you, so to speak. 
And people think socially is how people normally think. When in Rome, do as the Romans do, everything in moderation. Okay, that's fine for, you know, walking into a new party where you don't know anybody. But as far as health, that is a stupid way to think. Okay, if you think like the average American, I'll just do what everyone else does. You're going to be fat, sick, and stupid by the time you're 60. Okay, you want to think, actually, I believe you think kind of biblically. Thou shalt not eat meat. Thou shalt not eat oil. Thou shalt exercise every day. Thou shalt get your sleep. You make it a point to do these things. Okay, because eventually people start hitting what I would call irreversible uh, stages in disease where you you can't get that back. You have a stroke, that brain tissue is gone. You're not going to get it back. You have a myocardial infarction, a heart attack, that, that cardiac muscle is gone. That's not coming back, okay? And you lose brain, brain neurons, you're not going to get that cognitive function back. That thing had a memory stored from, you know, 20, 30 years ago. It ain't coming back. So, you know, most of the stuff, it can all be presented by going low fat, low sodium vegan. Why not do it? I mean, I don't, some people say, oh, well, I don't want to do that. I love meat or I love this junk food or something else. I love getting drunk every weekend. I'm like, you can do whatever you want. But the way I, the way I am is I have an attitude of gratitude. Thank God there's something I can do that I don't have to be fat, sick and stupid like most of these people over here. I don't want that to have happen. It's not inevitable that, you know, all these bad health things are going to happen. No, I can prevent them. I have volition. I have will. I have free will. And I'm going to prevent it. That's what I'm going to do. And I'm glad that I have that option. Yes, and I'm glad too. And I'm so glad that we have somebody like you that, that is an expert in this and that can give us all this information because I have seen a lot of people who have adopted a whole food plant-based lifestyle and have seen improvement. But like you said, that's not everything. There's so much more to it than that. And I'm glad that you're, you're talking about it because there's a lot to know. And when we know better, we do better. Yeah. I also got one last thing I forgot to mention about cooking oil. Mm -hmm. Cooking oils aren't just dangerous for eating. They're also dangerous for cooking. And what I mean by that is I was kind of curious about what's causing lung cancer because I've seen a significantly increased incidence of lung cancer in a lot of women who are not smokers. And I studied, you know, what are all these women getting lung cancer in Asia and these different countries? And the impression I came to is that it's two things. Number one, sometimes it's because they live in a city that's very polluted. They're inhaling air pollution every day. But the other thing was working with cooking oil fumes. So when somebody cooks like fries food, a lot of times they're frying it also on a nonstick pan. And that's made out of something like POFAS, which has got like polymers of fluoride. And, and some of it's scratched up and comes into the air. And, you know, they're inhaling this, this fluoridated air with hydroxynanol in it. And it's going to the nerve that goes right to their brain. It's going into their lungs. And it's increasing the risk of becoming demented and getting lung cancer. Okay. So cooking oil fumes, you look it up, you'll find 10 papers in five seconds. Okay. On, on increased risk of lung cancer in women who don't smoke. Mm. Wow. Well, that's, that's good to know. And I'm not using oil. So that's something that I know that I, don't have to worry about. Okay, so here's another one. True or false, lack of sleep and or consuming caffeine is equivalent to experiencing stress, which can cause cognitive impairment. So that's a lot to talk about. True or false, Green Warriors. Go ahead, Dr. Rogers. Yeah, the, the two key hormones that are increased with uh, psychological stress are cortisol, Cortisol goes up. It's actually called the stress hormone. And so do catecholamines. Catecholamine really means adrenaline and noradrenaline. Some people call it epinephrine and norepinephrine. Okay. And the sort of way you, you teach a student the first time they learn about the, the physiology of stress, is you tell them being chased by a tiger in the dark is the classic example given. All right. So 
in order, if you're getting chased by a target in the dark, man, you need a lot of energy fast. You got to climb a tree, do whatever you got to do. So because of that, oh, standing up and fix my camera there. All right. So because of that, you're going to have an increase in your, your adrenaline, noradrenaline. Well, that's going to do two things. Also, when you're trying to run, the brain is almost like there's three parts of the brain. There's something called the three-part brain of McLean or the triune brain. Okay. Your brain stem is like a fist. All right, let's see if I can get it right here. It's like here would be, let's say, your pond. You stick your knuckles up. That would be your midbrain. This would be your medulla going into your spinal cord. And that is your so-called reptile brain. The reptile brain is just for very basic stuff, to maintain a heartbeat and a blood pressure. A reptile has a simple life. It lays a couple eggs, and then whenever the eggs are born, whatever, they're on their own. Okay, it doesn't have to do anything. A mammal, the next step up above the, above the brain stem is the mammal brain. That's called the limbic system. The limbic system is like the cingulate gyrus on top going into the medial temporal lobe, okay, and the hippocampus and whatnot. And that is the mammal brain. The mammals is a lot more complicated its life than a reptile. A mammal has live-born young, and it nurses them, okay, and it has a sense of a family, and it tries to protect its young. And so it, it's largely instinctual, though. The, you know, the mammals, you know, makes it's impulsive. It's very emotional, okay? So that's the mammal brain, all right? And that's the one that's going to come into play with fight or flight. And then built on top of that, is the so-called human brain, the primate brain, the cerebral cortex. And a big part of cerebral cortex is just delayed gratification. I will do the right thing because I know that's what's best in the long run. Okay, that's a very human thing to say that and think that way. And so what I'm getting at is um, when you shift into stress, you go into fight or flight or freeze mode, okay? And that's not a time for detailed thinking. That's, am I going to fight? Am I going to run? Okay. And so what I'm saying is you actually will decrease the blood flow to your frontal lobes. All right. You'll have enough to get you to run in your motor uh, part of your brain, but you're not in your deep, thoughtful, cognitive mode. All right. So what am I trying to say? I think caffeine is much worse than people say. As you get older, let's say that we say you go from 20 years of age to 60 years of age, you probably got in the ballpark of a 20% drop in brain blood perfusion, which you compensate from for okay, but you you drop that more when you have caffeine, for example, your thought to drop, depending on what paper you're in the ballpark of 15%, the blood flow to your brain, your cerebral cortex. Okay. Well, you've already lost 20% just getting into your sixties. Now you lose another 15% with caffeine, but it's worse than that because caffeine is also a stimulant. It activates your hippocampal neurons to release more glutamate. About 80% of brain neurotransmitters are glutamate and it travels across the synapse and has is an excitatory neurotransmitter. It activates the postsynaptic neurons. So I'm going to show synapses in a moment, but what I'm saying is with caffeine, it's a double screw job. It's a screw job because you're increasing that metabolic activity of the neuron while you're simultaneously dropping its blood flow. You don't want to do that. And then let's say you have caffeinated soda pop with a cheese pizza. Um, you're screwing yourself in three ways. Your caffeine is increasing your metabolic rate in those neurons. The cheese is dropping oxygen glucose delivery about 15%. The caffeine about another 15%, even though they might compensate a little bit there. But you get my point. You're widening that gap where your neurons are at increased risk to go in apoptosis. And there's a lot of salt on there that's going to vasoconstrict and further decrease the blood supply to your brain. So it's stupid. Um, when you're sleep deprived, um, you compensate for that by having increased uh, the same hormones, cortisol and uh, the catecholamines. So and yeah, everybody knows that when you're, when, you're, when you're sleep deprived, you're more impulsive. You're pissed off. You say something you shouldn't have said. You're like, oh, man, why did I say that? You know, you're impulsive. You're not thinking. You're in like a mammal mode, instinctual mode rather than a thoughtful mode. And the other way that comes up, I like that three-part brain idea because what it sort of says to you is that you can think about the future. You can extrapolate the consequences and you can more wisely choose how to behave. You know, you're with your significant other 
And you're like, no, I'm not going to say that. Because if I say that, she's just pissed off for five minutes. If I say that, she'll be pissed off for five years. I ain't going to say it. Whatever that might be. You know, you, you, you can judge more wisely. We'll talk tomorrow. <laughs> right. So you better you better stay stay on the straight and narrow and not consume caffeine because that could get you into trouble. <laughs> okay. Well, we kind of had a preview for this, but I'd still like to talk about it some more. So true or false, Green Warriors, sodium is a vasoconstrictor that tightens arteries and reduces blood flow to areas of the body, including the brain. It also leads to the distortion of the function of the neurons in the brain. So type in your answer. Okay, Dr. Rogers, what do you have to say? Yeah, when you eat a plant-based diet, I think our ancestors ate about 25 times more uh, potassium than sodium. Okay. Nowadays, though, modern Westerners are doing almost the opposite. They're eating about 10 times more sodium than potassium. Okay. That messes everything up. Even Dennis Burkett has said, we're the only animal on the planet that's eating more uh, sodium than potassium. And because of that, uh, we've put things backwards. Sodium is a vasoconstrictor, meaning it narrows the artery. So you get less blood supply to your tissues. Potassium is a vasodilator. It opens up arteries, giving you more blood supply to the tissues. And every cell in your body has these plasma membrane pumps. The three most important ions in your body, that means little charged small molecules, are potassium, sodium, magnesium, and calcium. So that'd be the four. Okay. But the point I'm making is the good stuff comes from plants. That's your potassium. P for plants, P for potassium. And your magnesium. Magnesium is right in the center of chlorophyll. Just like, you know, iron's in the center of heme with meat, something bad you don't want, you got too much of. You got something good, magnesium, right in the center. Those are the most common nutrient deficiencies, fiber, potassium, and magnesium. Okay, so what I'm saying is we're short on the vasodilators, and we're overdoing it with the vasoconstrictor. We're decreasing our blood supply. And I kind of joke that, you know, when people say TBI, traumatic brain injury, but I can say TBI also means something else, total body ischemia. Westerners have a deficiency of blood supply all through their body because they're eating all this fat, and they're vasoconstrictor from all this sodium. Okay, and, and then it's even worse than that because you have an individual cell and that cell, actually the cell, if you, when you read cellular physiology, um, it's like genius level. Okay, one of the things people sometimes say, why do I believe in God? I go, because I study biology and it is so complicated. It is so brilliant that you're like, wow, some scientist dedicates their entire life, 50 years, you know, all the work they could possibly do, and they could figure out one little tiny millionth of one little thing. Okay, that's how complicated it is and how brilliant it is. So a cell, every cell has a battery. Okay, while humans were still walking around, barbarians, you know, bar barely able to talk, the cell already had batteries and pumps and all kinds of really advanced, sophisticated stuff. So the way it produces a battery across the plasma cell membrane is through sodium-potassium pumps, and it has to maintain an electrochemical gradient. It's electric in the sense that there's about a negative 65 millivolt charge across that membrane, and it's uh, a chemical gradient in that there's more sodium outside the cell than inside the cell. Same thing with calcium. And so the cell uses that battery to pump things in and out, and it all has to be coordinated. What I'm basically saying is you have to maintain a fixed amount of anions, for example, and cations. Cations are positively charged ions like sodium and potassium. If you eat lots more sodium, in order to balance your ions, the body has to void out some potassium. So you lose potassium, and you don't want to be depleted in potassium because then you weaken all your plasma membrane gradients. And the, and the net result is you're less able to pump calcium out of the cytoplasm because typically it's coupled to the sodium gradient, and the sodium gradient is now partially dissipated. And because it is a weakened gradient, you're less 
able to quickly, speedily pump calcium out of the cell. So you have higher intracellular calcium. What happens in a vascular smooth muscle cell in the wall of an artery when it has higher cytoplasmic calcium? It stays contracted. So you've got more contracted arteries. You, you've inhibited endothelial nitric oxide, the vasodilator, and you have higher cytoplasm calcium in your vascular smooth muscle. If you ever want to read a book about it, the best book ever written on the subject by far is called The High Blood Pressure Solution. The name of the author is Richard Moore, MD, PhD. He, his entire life, that's what he did. He researched ion pumps in the context of uh, hypertension. It's a, it's a masterpiece book. That's one of the top 20 all-time health books ever written. All right, well, anyways, the point I'm trying to tell you is you're screwing yourself when you, when you eat high sodium and low potassium. And it's easy to fix it. Stop adding salt to your food and eat plant foods. Right. And although plant foods do have some sodium in them. Yeah, they, they do have some. They have what you need, but they don't have a dramatic extra amount. You know, if you look also at, at you know, um, Kempner's work, okay, he was feeding people really low, but he was monitoring the patients. But if you just eat a regular plant-based diet, you'll get about 200 to 500 milligrams a day. That's all you need. You'll be fine. The so-called low-sodium diet prescribed to a lot of people quite often is in the ballpark of, you know, 2,000 milligrams, which I think is quite a bit more, almost 10 times more what you need. Um, and, uh, you look at, you know, so yeah, bottom line is you don't need it. And I also think too, as you get older, you get more fragile. So you want to get your act together, the sooner, the better, before you start having irreversible events. You know, for example, I can look at a brain, I can look at a spine, you know, from almost across the room on a picture of it on a, on a monitor, on a computer monitor. And I can tell pretty much how old that patient is. And, you know, a Westerner patient, because they all have all this progressive damage to their brains and their spines from all this ischemic disease. So what I'm saying is you want to fix your diet <laughs> before you start having all this irreversible stuff. Cause you know, you're going to age. Eventually we're going to get old and die, but why speed it up? Right. Let's just have a, as good a quality of life as we can. Absolutely. And since I've been almost a decade, I guess, no, a little bit more than a decade now that I've been uh, sugar, oil and salt free and, and hopefully plant-based and unprocessed, and I'm just so amazed that there are oftentimes when I will, you know, taste a, a, a leafy green and say, this tastes salty. And if I was eating, dining out, I would think that somebody put salt in my salad, but it's not true. It's in, it's in there. So we do need a, a small amount of it, but we're going to get it from, from the leafy greens and, and the other uh, foods that have it. So it's, it's just a perfect balance of nature. It, it, it really is amazing. Okay, we might talk about this a little bit. Let's we'll explore it a little bit more. True or false, Green Warriors? Antifungal preservatives can harm the brain. We have some people that joined us, so they may not have heard the beginning part of what we talked about. But go ahead, Dr. Rogers. What do you say? Yeah, antifungals are very common. For example, in preserv uh, preservatives in processed food, they're common preservatives. Um, in personal care products because nobody wants mold growing in their product. It gets returned to the, the, the maker of it and they lose money. Um, it's also the case, so there are the real strong antifungal preservatives, but there's also just estrogenic chemicals in general um, tend to have antifungal properties like your power benzoic acids. Okay, and uh, estrogenic chemical means that in the corner, you're going to have an aromatic ring, a benzene ring, and then coming off it, there's going to be, let's just say this is the phosphate. There's going to be a phosphate coming off it that's a hydroxyl group. And a combination of a benzene ring with a hydroxyl group, that's called a phenol group. And that is antimicrobial, antifungal. Okay, so that's really the milder antifungals. The more powerful antifungals, though, we'll talk about them. They are quite often mitochondrial inhibitors, okay, like complex two um, or coenzyme Q. I forget which one because they're right next to each other, those two. But the bottom line is 
You don't want anything inhibiting your mitochondria. That drops your ability to produce energy in your brain cells, all right? And anything that's a mitochondria inhibitor is kind of in the long run about the same thing as a circa inhibitor and about the same thing as an excitotoxin. They all increase your risk of brain damage, of losing neurons due to apoptosis because of excitotoxicity. Okay, apoptosis is programmed cell death. It's gradual cell death whereby the cell knows it's in trouble and while it's dying, it says, recycle this, recycle this, recycle this. And it happens gradually. And that way, recycling the cell's contents means that the organelles, for example, can be ingested by a microglia cell. And it can then deliver them somewhere else or send them to the liver or something. And they can be recycled. Versus when you have a big stroke, a big arteries occluded, you know, let's say in a more distal branch of your brain, and there's no collateral circulation to maintain the cells alive. It's just a big mess. The cells will open up their plasma membrane. All their contents will spill out. It's a big mess. A lot of edema, inflammation to clean it up. You can point with your hand on the MRI. That is where the patient had a stroke and the precentral gyrus on the left side. Okay. Versus apoptosis, the brain just shrinks. All right. So, because it happens gradually. So what I'm trying to say is this type of thing increases your risk of apoptosis. And most of the demented people I see when I look at their brains, they don't have any big cortical stroke. They may or may not have periventricular small silent strokes. Most of them have a primarily an atrophic brain. It's shrunken from apoptosis. That's the most common thing I see is shrunken brains uh, with cognitive impairment. Okay. I mean, I do see occasionally I'll see a cortical stroke being the cause. And occasionally, you know, actually relatively common, I'll see extensive periventricular flare hyperintensities, you know, indicating a bunch of silent strokes. Okay. But quite often that brain's got no stroke, not even one. Right. So here, here we are going through brain scans and, and we're looking up the wrong tree. You know, we should be looking at the tree and getting the fruit. Okay, uh, let's see. Oh, okay. Oh, I had that one. I just want to make sure that I was going and getting the right question. Okay, here's an interesting one. True or false, Green Warriors, eating conventional versus organic food can lead to brain dysfunction. Type in your guess. Go ahead, Dr. Rogers. Yeah, I think it's better to eat organic when you can. Um, it's more important for some foods compared to others. Uh, for example, let's say you talk about soy. Soy is pretty routinely sp sprayed with glyphosate. And a good way to think of that is glycine connected to a phosphate. Well, glycine is one of the neurotransmitters that activates the glutamate receptor. The glutamate receptor is called the NMDA receptor or MDAR, okay? And glycine activates that. Well, when you activate that receptor for glutamate, you're increasing calcium entry into the cell. It's a calcium channel. So you can cause increased activity of that neuron. So it's an excitotoxin. Glyphosate is an excitotoxin. All right. And then you get back into what I talked about. You're increasing the metabolic rate. And if you're increasing that relative to the oxygen glucose delivery, you're increasing the risk of that neuron may go into apoptosis. Um, also, uh, soy is a typical protein source in a processed food. Um, it's only sprayed with glyphosate when it is not organic. When it's organic, it's not sprayed with that stuff. Um, it's very often processed with hexane. Hexane is another neurotoxin, okay? So that's just for the soy itself. The soy itself is intrinsically estrogenic. It's intrinsically uh, goitrogenic to some degree, okay? Um, and then what's the next common uh, thing? Typically, you'll see as a sugar source in a, in a processed food, you're going to have corn, okay? High fructose corn syrup, for example. They spray that typically with atrazine. Atrazine is a mitochondrial inhibitor. Inhibits complex three. It's also very powerful estrogenic. That's the one they give the male frog and turn it into a female. Okay. It's almost like I sometimes wonder if this stuff is designed to sterilize people. Okay. Soy, you feed it to like, you know, really young ones. It, it can change their 
their reproductive system. Because some people are under the impression, oh, it only affects, you know, like the beta receptor or not the alpha receptor. It affects both, okay? I've read the paper. It affects both. And not that big of a difference. There's some difference, right? But I think it's pretty overrated. Also, when something's not organic, it's not only just soy and um, even foods you would think of as being pretty healthy. They'll spray glyphosate on the beans to help harvest them sooner, especially in colder climates like Canada. Um, they'll even spray it on the oats, on the oatmeal and stuff too. So that's why you would give it a choice. Organic is better. Okay. It's not perfect, but it's better. So if you can afford it, if it's available, I would eat organic. By the way, I only eat organic. I mean, but there's some foods where it's less important. You could go to environmental working group, EWG, I think.org. And they have a list of the dirty dozen, so to speak. And like, for example, a strawberry, you're screwed. I mean, look at the complexity of that outer surface, whatever sprayed on there, you ain't going to wash it off. All right. And then look at that. Look at a, look at a spinach. Okay. A spinach. It's just a leaf. Okay. You know, whatever they spray, it's on the leaf. You know, how are you going to wash a leaf? All right. You got something like maybe. Yeah. So there's some foods that's kind of tough to work with. You definitely would want those to be, uh, to be organic if you're going to eat those. Yeah, I, I think that many people aren't aware of what they go through in order to harvest certain foods, as you were talking about with the oats and, and things, because, I mean, it's so it's a lot of work to, to pull out a plant and then take off the little beans and, 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 and harvest in that way. And wouldn't it be just easier just to spray something to kill the plant when it's ready to harvest, kill the whole thing, it gets dried out, and now you can just take it apart and harvest it. and when people first learn about that process, it's unbelievable because, you know, if I was growing a garden in my backyard, I wouldn't take a, a chemical and, and spray it all over my, my food when I was ready to harvest it. That would be the last thing I would think of doing. And I think it, it goes back again to that thing that I talked about earlier with the sign in the store about the cigarettes and the nicotine and the secondhand smoke and how they're posting this warning and it's still people are buying the cigarettes anyway, but these things are on the shelves. And, and just because they don't have a warning label on it doesn't mean that you shouldn't be thinking about these things. So I'm really glad that you're uh, explaining it to us in, in such great detail. And the information is available out there. You know, we can just, we just need to look for it because it's not going to be given to us. Okay. Um, okay. Here's something that we were talking about, some processed food. So let's see about this question. Green Warriors. True or false, if a processed food has more than one ingredient, it could contain MSG, which is monosodium glutamate. And so go ahead and uh, type in your guess for that answer. Dr. Rogers, tell us about that. Yeah, that's why I never eat anything that's got more than one ingredient. Uh, as a bad, but the only thing I eat that comes in a box that I can think of is, is plain oatmeal, single ingredient, because I don't want all that... Um, all those chemicals. When they got a second ingredient, they can throw MSG in there, monosodium glutamate. And there's some comp there's some issues about it, but the bottom line is I consider it an excitotoxin to prove it otherwise. And the amount of effect it has in your brain, it's variable, but there's too many reasons why you should avoid it. And so I, I will never eat anything with MSG in it. It can I know some people, I have a friend, he graduated first in his medical class, he gets terrible migraines when he has MSG. There was a good book called Excitotoxins by Russell Blaylock. He's a neurosurgeon. His father died from Parkinson's disease, and he felt that excitotoxins had contributed to it. And so he wrote a book about it, which was rather interesting. Then I subsequently read all these papers on it. I was quite interested in it. Actually, I'm the one who kind of figured out. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of people who've done tons and tons of research on it. But when I studied it in great detail, what I realized was 
Excitotoxins increase calcium in the cytoplasm and therefore overactivate a cell and can cause a neuron to die because of that. But circa inhibitors, in a sense, have a, a same net effect. If you can't pump calcium out of the cytoplasm, you can overload the cytoplasm with calcium, overactivate cell, cell dies. Okay. And then mitochondria inhibitors have almost the same effect because if you drop energy production in the mitochondria, then the cell can't meet its energy needs. And in a sense, it dies for the same reason. Its energy needs don't meet its energy demands. And so what I'm saying is, why would I want MSG that's probably going to add to those energy demands? Because the glutamate is going to have an excitatory effect on the NMDA receptor. So I don't want it. And I don't want glyph glyphosate. And I don't want aspartame. They all do the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think often about there are people that are suffering with migraines. And they're oh. going through so much, not, not even knowing that it could potentially be something that seems so benign in their food. Yeah, I think that's a key point because most people, what they do is they go to a neurologist, they ask them about three common questions, and they don't have any of the three common questions, and then they go, oh, screw it, take this pill, and they take a pill for years or decades, whatever, whereas if they would have done a more exhaustive search, there's not just three things that can cause migraines, there's a whole bunch more than that, they would maybe find that thing that was causing it, because that's what you want to do when you have an allergy or you're, you're sensitive to something, figure out what it is for any disease, figure out what the cause is if you can, look at the epidemiology, look what else is known or written about it, find somebody who has it, and then avoid the thing that causes it versus just taking a pill that's not as good of an option. Pills don't tend to cure almost anything. All they do is decrease symptoms, usually. Right. And they're often not tested more than one pill at a time. So often you're Americans especially are consuming cocktails of pills. So maybe the study, which may not be reliable, but it did not include a cocktail of medications. It only included one medication. And now we're putting another medication to counteract some of the side effects of the first one. And now we're making this chemical mixture and who knows what's, what's happening. Okay. Uh, oh, here's one that I liked. True or false, Cream Warriors? We're smartest in the morning. Okay, type in your answer and go ahead, Dr. Rogers. Yeah, you think about it, you know, ask yourself the question, when does an animal have to be smartest? An animal needs to be smart when it's hungry. It better find some food before it starves to death. Starvation was always the issue with our ancestors and with animals in the wild, okay? <laughs> it was only this last century where people are worried about overnutrition and, you know, being fat. Um, so the point I'm saying is when you wake up in the morning, they call the first meal breakfast because you've broken your fast since last night, the last time you ate. So you got to be smart. You got to find your food. In addition, when you sleep at night, so yes, you are smartest in the morning. At night, we have something called the glymphatic system. Glymph, the G comes for glial and then lymphatic for lymphatic. So glial are like supporting cells. It also kind of means glue in some other language. So, but it kind of holds the neurons together. So that what I'm saying is your brain cannot clean itself during the daytime. The animal's walking around in the wild. It has to be with it. It has to know what's going on. So in order to have your neurons functioning well, they need precise neuronal gradients, you know, maintain that neuronal milieu, those precise electrochemical grains across their plasma cell membranes. So you can't be managing your waste products at that time. So what happens is when you go to sleep, your brain, in a sense, goes offline and your neurons will pump out their waste products a little bit like think of Victorian England dumping out their chamber pot into the street. And then hopefully the next day somebody will clean it up or hopefully it'll rain and rinse it away. But the point I'm saying is that's essentially what happens in the brain. The neurons at night while you're asleep, 
they extrude their waste products and then the what are called the perivascular spaces of Verkal Robin, they open up and cerebral spinal fluid rinses over the neurons and washes away their waste products. They then travel towards like superior sagittal sinus or the cranial nerves are and whatnot. And they can be reabsorbed those waste products, some at the capillary level as well. But the, the point I'm making is that's how the cell cleans. So when you wake up in the morning, your neurons have gotten rid of all their waste products. They're clean, they're fresh, they're ready to go. You get a little burst of cortisol, not an excessive amount like with stress, but just a little bit to maintain your blood glucose level. You also get a hormone from your stomach, G for gastric, you know, gastric is stomach and G for ghrelin is the hormone that goes to your hippocampus and it kind of activates it. So you're alert, you're with it. And one of the key things, you know, I spent a long time trying to figure out how does one become the best possible student? I was in some incredibly competitive academic situations. And so I really wanted to know how does one become the best possible student? For example, if you look at school, what is school for the most part? School is largely high, grade school, high school, college, like a memorization contest. Okay. But no one ever learns how to do it. Okay. What I'm saying is every single grade school and high school should be telling the kids, watch this memory championship and look at what they do. Okay. Study these memory techniques. Should be teaching them study skills. But the fact of the matter is I've never met anybody in my whole life that was trained in memory techniques and study skill techniques in grade school or high school. I never met a single person. Okay. And I, I've looked into that quite extensively. All right. So anyways, one of the things I've learned is you are smartest in the morning. So what I always do, if I got a list of all the things I'm going to do that day, my whole list of, let's say, whatever it is, you know, five, 10 things. I always do the most difficult thing first thing in the morning. The other thing too, is as soon as I wake up in the morning, I sit down and I start studying because I know from experience, if you sit down and you start reading, you start becoming interested in it. One idea leads to another idea and you make a lot of progress. On the other hand, if you do other things, <laughs> you might never sit your butt in that chair till late in the afternoon. You're tired. After you eat a meal, your IQ is going to drop 20, 30 points. You won't even be able to do the complex thing. you got to, as soon as you wake up in the morning, boom, sit down and do that complex thing. Okay. I have a fun one for everyone. True or false? Dr. Rogers started out as one of the worst students in all classes at Stanford and became one of the best, earning 99% board scores while at the University of Illinois Med School and while a resident. Okay, take your guess, Green Warriors, and I would like Dr. Rogers to tell us about that. Yeah, because this comes out of a few things. For example, if you listen to all these college professors, including the, you know, the famous guy, Jordan Peterson, they're all going to say, there's nothing you could do to change IQ. IQ is just intrinsically genetic. There's nothing you do. That is not true. They are all wrong. They're completely wrong. And the reason I say that is I know it in myself and in, from students who I've, I've tutored and I've given helpful advice to. So my situation was when I was in high school, everybody who knew me knew me as an athlete. My parents were both fuzzy foreigners. I didn't even know what an AP class was. I never took an honors class. I was all just in regular classes. I tried to get good enough grades. My parents don't bug me. I can go out on the weekend, you know. Um, and then I got injured. I was I was a real good athlete. I would have had a full scholarship to any uh, big school for wrestling. Okay. And all of a sudden, I had a fracture in the growth plate of my clavicle. And I kept expecting to get better right away. I tried to wrestle. I re-injured, re fractured I'm like, holy crap. I keep getting injured. I, might, I didn't even compete in the state tournament my senior year. I'm like, my career might be over. You know, the big schools that were offering me scholarships before, now they're withdrawing the scholarship offers. And I'm like, oh, crap, I better get good at school. And I was like, oh, man, I'm going to have to be an academic person. And so then when I went to Stanford, I took the easiest possible classes, my first set of quarters. They're on a quarter system rather than semester system. Now I've got like all Bs and B minuses. I'm like, oh, crap. Once I take a real class, I'm going to flunk out of this place. All right. So I was pretty scared. Um, I found this one guy who was getting A pluses in the most difficult class. I said, will you please teach me how to study? How do you do it? What's the secret? What's the trick? And I just hung around with him. He let me hang around with him. And I picked up some of his tricks. I learned, especially I learned condensed notes from him. 
producing a complete summary within one's own notebook. So you can just review that before the exam. And then I took a class in study skills and I got my first A the next quarter. I'm like, wow, I can get an A at Stanford. Okay. Average SAT score at Stanford is like 1410. It's well into the like 99th percentile. And I was going to major in biology, you know, so that's just, uh, you know, to get a B, you got to be up in the 99th percentile. Okay. So it's pretty competitive ac academic environment. And then the next year was the pre-med weed out classes. So I kept studying study skills, memorization techniques, and hanging around with this friend of mine and watching how he would go to the library. He would study first thing in the morning and I can't, became better, better. I got A pluses my second year in the most difficult classes, you know, the organic chemistry class and the biology class. Then I went to med school. And I was kind of cocky. You know, I come from Stanford. I'm going to University of Illinois for med school. I just expected I'll be first in the class. I figured it would be kind of easy, you know. I, so on the first set of midterms, I got like 10 percentile. And I was so pissed off. I'm like 10 percentile? I've given up my whole life. I had such a crappy social life at Stanford. I never uh, had a single girlfriend at Stanford in four years. Okay. When I was in high school and I was an athlete, I always had a nice girlfriend. Okay. And so my life basically sucked from a social point of view. All right. So anyways, and then I'm like, all that work, all that sacrifice. I got the 10%. I felt like somebody mugged me in an alley. I was so pissed off. Like, how could this happen? All right. So anyways, I'm sitting at a table and I hear two students talking to each other. And they're like, what did you take senior year of college? Oh, I took, you know, anatomy, histology, physiology. I'm like, they had all the classes before. So they had a big advantage on me. I'm like, oh, man, that sucks. No wonder I, I, I didn't get the highest grade in the class. So then I talked to this friend of mine. I knew a guy who had graduated first in his med school class. And I'm like, how did you do it? And he told me that he basically got the notes from the previous year. They make them available if you want them. And he would just study the night before for the difficult classes. And so I call that pre-reading. So um, I would then start to pre-read, like especially before biochemistry. I get real psyched up like it was an emotional event. And you have to get yourself in a set of mind where your brain remembers what's important to you. Your brain doesn't remember things that don't matter. It remembers things that are important to you. And I, I even make the, the analogy to the book. There's an author, a German author by uh, John Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, and he wrote a book called The Sorrow of a Young Werther. Okay, so young Werther was this guy. He was in love with a girl named Charlotte, and he would keep writing letters to his friend Wilhelm. There were no cell phones in the day. He couldn't call him. And he would just say, oh, I love Charlotte. She's so wonderful. The way she walks, the way she talks, the way she interacts with her siblings. She's so graceful. She's just perfect. I'm so in love with her. And the point that I'm saying is, Fall in love with biology like he is in love with Charlotte. You'll be the best student in the United States, okay? So try to fall in love with the subject. So I convince myself, for example, biochemistry is the most difficult subject in medical school. I convince myself, and I and I do feel that way. Biochemistry is the language of God. That's how he writes the book of life. And if I want to be a great doctor, a great scientist, someday I have to learn this. And it's rather beautiful. And my father would say to me, you know, you're lucky, you little bastard. You could be drafted on the front line in Vietnam, okay? You get to sit around and study and twirl a pencil. You're pretty damn lucky. Most people, since the beginning of time, they've all been peasants trying to scratch a living out of the dirt just to have some food so they don't starve to this so quit your wine and do your work and shut up okay so my father would talk to me and i was like well the old man kind of has a point and uh so anyways i saw it as an opportunity and i get psyched up i would read for a couple hours the night before about chemistry class i go sit right in the front row and i imagine i'm a goalie and, um, you know, I'm not going to try to let anything get past me. And I would sort of get myself psyched up because I was intimidated by the biochemistry professor. I would go, I'm the future, you're the past. You're not going to get anything past me. And I had read a ton, so I learned all the vocabulary. I could abbreviate everything. And because of that, uh, I, went, I was like the best biochemistry student in the whole United States. Um, and I made all these mnemonics. I read all these books on memory techniques, word association techniques, memory contest champions, what they do. Uh, I also learned that walk and talk self-test is probably the most powerful thing. So what a typical student does is, they read a book, okay? So whatever the book is, they read it, and then they highlight it all over the place, and then they hope they recognize their highlighter note. Sometimes they do an all-nighter. I never did an all-nighter in my whole life, okay? Um, and what I would do is 
I would put the book down. Let's say I'm going to go do my laundry. And while I'm going to do my laundry, I'm going to go get something to eat or whatever it might be. Go to the bathroom. I'll sit there and I'll talk to myself. I'll say, okay, chapter one, where I read about glycolysis, the biochemistry cycle. What is the unifying feature of glycolysis? Well, the irreducible minimum is the location of the phosphate. So if I can remember where the phosphate is, I can remember everything in glycolysis. Glucose comes into the cell. It's phosphorylated. That puts a charge on it. So it then can't go back out of the cell. Then you have to convert it into fructose, a more symmetric molecule. So for the second half of glycosis, it's more easily cleaved to uh, three carbon molecules. And what I'm saying is by having said the whole thing, articulated, that's called a walk and talk self-test. You're walking around and you're talking to yourself. And I would get teased by family and friend. Why are you talking to yourself? Are you schizophrenic? You know, I go, no, I'm studying. Okay. And the point being is that if you can articulate the material, you can generate it all. You, you've made a copy of it in your speech center, a copy of it in your hearing center. It's all in your mind. So you become very confident. I'm like, I'm not worried about recognizing the word on a test. I could produce everything. I could, I could generate it all. And when you start doing that, you become a much better student. Plus, like, let's say when I was studying biology, I was hanging out with that guy who was an A-plus student, friend of mine. And we would go off into the woods. There's a lot of nature places in California. And we'd go bird watching. And while we're out there bird watching, we've envisioned, I was considering being a wildlife biologist. Okay. So- you know, we, I even, for example, I'll just tell you one story. I went to the Palo Alto Baylands, okay? And I'm going bird watching out there with a friend of mine. And so I go to the, the nature center there and I'm like, where's your field guide for all the birds and the plants in this area? And they go, oh, we don't have one. I'm like, what do you mean you don't have a field guide? You guys, what the hell's wrong with you, okay? So I, I made my own field guide. I went out there by myself, even though I was super busy. I was on the wrestling team and I was taking all these difficult classes. And I, and I wrote out a field guide of all the birds and the plants distributed in that area. And the reason I did that was, to me, that was an absolute necessity at that time, because I, what I'm trying to say is if you are in love with biology, you'll be a lot better at biology. If you envision yourself as potentially becoming a biologist, you will be much better at bio, you'll be much better at biology, the class. So I was doing all of those things without even realizing at the time. What I'm trying to say is personality is a giant, tremendous component of, of, of IQ. When you say IQ, what are you talking about? You're talking about ability to answer questions on different types of tests, a verbal test, a mathematic test, or whatever the subject is, whatever the domain is. And all of these things empower you. There's something called the growth mindset of Carol Dweck, which is called if a student realizes they can improve if they add effort, they'll be more willing to make effort versus if they think it's a fixed quantity, you just are what you are, you're either smart or you're not, then they don't try so hard and they're, they're embarrassed. Well, maybe I'm not that smart. Versus if you say, if I just try harder and, and work on my technique and my methods, I can get better, then you can get better. So what I'm saying is I went from just being a guy who never took an honors class in high school to being A plus. And I got an A plus, you know, and I graduated first in my medical class when I did my residency and my diagnostic radiology boards, four and a half hour tests. I'm done in an hour, 10 minutes with perfect score. Okay. Because this became part of my personality to kind of be a scholar. I kind of said to myself, I had this vision in my mind's eye that basically my life sucked in college and it kind of sucked in medical school too because University of Illinois is in the city. It's kind of in a lousy neighborhood. So there's no social events. And I'm like, oh man, four years of this social loneliness and torture. And now I got four more years. Does this suck? I hate it. Okay. And so what I'm trying to say though, being a little lonely though, gives you more time to study. But I had this idea in my mind, well, someday I'm going to be a great doctor or a great scientist and it's all going to be worth it. My life's going to get better. Because when you're an athlete, and I was a really good athlete in high school, everybody likes you. The guys like you, the girls like you, the coaches like you, you know, my dad liked me playing sports. But what I've learned as an academic is when you're an academic, no one cares, of course. And now it's even worse as a vegan, low fat vegan. There's no, no money in it, you know? So conventional medicine doesn't care. Conventional medicine, what do you mean? You're going to cure a diabetic patient with no drugs? 
shut up you know so there's so it's kind of like i'm a little bit disappointed i'm like oh my god i went into the wrong thing i should have you know studied the stock market or something done wrong i love biology and health and stuff and but there, there's not a lot of money and all that but, but you get you get what i'm saying though in my mind's eye i was like somehow i'm going to compensate for this sadness and loneliness of you know screwing up my athletic career coming back too soon and getting injured and because of that it really energized me and like people who know me that's one of the things they know it's like well, where do you get all this energy and I'm like, well, you know, I don't do too many things. If you focus on only a few things, you got more energy for them compared to you can't be all things to all people. And I think about how how uh, laser focused you were, you know, gazelle intent, right, when you were in school. And I'm hoping that with this show that people can get to be that way about their life and their health, and especially today with their brain and learning. Because if they get gazelle intent and they listen to think people like you and what the, the research that you're reporting and, and synthesizing, then they can be that way about their health and, and think about and be laser focused and not get distracted by, you know, in, in college you would have parties and things, people were trying to distract each other from, from doing what they were supposed to do. And in life with this plant-based lifestyle, people are trying to distract us, even doctors are trying to distract us from doing what's right. And if we if we know what's right and we can just be laser focused and intent, then I definitely see that people will have great improvements. And I'm so glad that you're here to, to tell us about that. Now, you had said that you wanted to, to share some slides or something, is that right? I can show some slides. I got, I got some good slides. Sure, let's see it. Okay, I'm gonna, I, I don't know if I have to click on a different button here. Or you, can you put me into my slides or should I click on a button? I need you to click off of the view that you see now, the screen no. view, and click on the view of your slide. Oh, on your, on your, oh, I think you took it off. So we'll wait for you to put it back on again. How anyway. about now? Can you see my slides? Not yet. You have to sh go into the present and, and share it. Okay. One sec here. Yeah. And we were talking about people who were distracting. While you're doing that, I'm, I'm just going to make some conversation people are distracting us from this way of life. And uh, Jay Grice said, a lot of people and friends told me my plant-based starch vegan diet is too extreme. And and that's that's right. And I I've, I hear that a lot too. And I think about that little uh, comic drawing that was circulating a lot where they had a, a cardiologist saying, I see it now, Dr. Rogers, and I'm going to pull it up, where they had a cardiologist saying that, you know, you think that's extreme. What about, you know, cutting open your chest and uh, and doing the surgery. So what really is extreme? You're, you're so right. Okay, Dr. Rogers, now I see your presentation. And tell okay. us what are we looking at here? This is a, a neuron in the brain, a brain cell. And these are the ones that can conduct information, action potentials. Here's a cell body with the nucleus and DNA. The mitochondria are located there. The action potential is transmitted down the length of the neuron, the axon. This is the axon terminal. These are the NT stands for neurotransmitter. Neurotransmitter uh, vesicle travels to the plasma membrane at the synaptic terminal to release, travels across the synaptic cleft, activates the postsynaptic neuron. Okay, what we're trying to protect is the hippocampus. The hippocampus neurons here in the medial temporal lobe of the brain, they are the most sensitive to oxygen deprivation. So they're the first to be lost. And those are the most important ones at your memory center. So that's what we want to protect. Um, two major patterns of atherosclerosis. The first one is the Westerner, American pattern, high fat diets. They, first of all, get a lot of atherosclerosis in the arteries of the heart called the coronary arteries. Coronary means like a crown around the heart. 
And people, that's the most common cause of death, dying from a heart attack, myocardial infarction due to occlusion of a coronary by atherosclerosis. And then another very common spot is in the internal carotid in the neck. So this is internal carotid already main supply of blood to the brain. This is what and you were talking about earlier with the bifurcation, right? By me. Yeah, yeah. And it splits off. Go ahead. Yep. This is the external carotid. Here's the internal carotid. And here's the median divider. When a person's hypertensive, the blood pressure, the blood comes up at a very high pressure, very high velocity, and it smacks against the median divider. And then it bounces off of there and it's quite turbulent. There's some retrograde eddy currents. And the our human body is not supposed to have such high blood pressure. Uh, so what happens is the endothelial cells lining the arterial wall on the far side away from the median div divider, they get confused by that. And they actually suspect an injury to the artery and they release, they shed their um, antithrombotic glycocalyx, meaning they're covering and they start to express prothrombotic molecules that encourage clotting. And atherosclerosis, by the way, is really a blood clot. There's something called atherothrombosis theory of, of, of atherosclerosis. Trust me, it's the best one. I've been studying atherosclerosis in great detail for decades. It, it includes cholesterol as a subset of atherothrombosis theory. So anyways, this is Westerner high-fat diet pattern of atherosclerosis, the heart and the carotids, and also the legs. Okay, now this is Asian pattern of atherosclerosis. And if you look at, let's say, the Japanese in 1970s, they ate tons of salt, like 12 grams a day or 14 or more. Plus, they smoked a lot. Smoking is a vasoconstrictor. So that would cause a lot of hypertension, but their diet was low in fat. And they would get injury to these intracranial vessels, and that would produce a type of atherosclerosis in response to the high pressure. So that's Asian pattern of atherosclerosis. All right. Now, here was a deletory theory of tying off the carotid artery in the mouse. And we talked about the mouse equivalence due to chronic cerebral hypoperfusion, lack of blood supply. And that leads to dementia. And then here's the Peter Rogers MD theory of dementia. And this really goes into more of a chemical explanation where I would talk about there are things that deprive the brain of oxygen and glucose, like high fat diets, excess dietary sodium, deficiency in potassium and magnesium. And then there are also stimulants that increase glutamate transmission across the synapse, things like MSG. MFG is manufactured free glutamate. There's all kinds of glutamate MSG substitutes. Um, and then, you know, cigarette smoking, stress, sleep deprivation, okay? Um, it's also worse if you have a shortage of antioxidants, again, from not eating plant foods. And then there's some direct toxins uh, to the brain. So these stimulants, you would think of those as being excitotoxins. That's their official name in the literature uh, versus, but I talked about circa inhibitors. They essentially do the same thing. Mitochondrial inhibitors, they essentially do the same thing. Okay, this is the base of the brain, these arteries right here. This is called the circle of Willis. Willis is the anatomist who discovered uh, the anatomical patterns here. And one of the points I'm going to make is you normally will have these small posterior communicating arteries. So a posterior communicator communicates between the anterior circulation from the carotids and the posterior circulation from the basilar arteries. It's called basilar because it's located at the base of the brain. It's fed by the vertebral arteries. And what I'm trying to say is normally it's a small communication between the anterior and posterior circulations. We call it the PCOM, posterior communicating artery. But some people have big PCOMs. And we have big PCOMs in the fetal stage of life, but sometimes a big PCOM persists. When you have a big PCOM artery, what happens is the basilar artery never really develops much. It's hypoplastic, congenitally small. And the relevance is a small artery is more at risk for forming atherosclerosis along its posterior wall. It's called mural atherosclerosis. And then there's little tiny perforating arteries called the pontine perforators that go off into the brainstem, the pons. And what I'm saying is a lot of people have this variation. I see it every day. And they're at increased risk for a brainstem stroke. Um, so here is the, the basilar artery running along the pons. And there's this little pontine perforator vessel. So if you've got this normal variation, and you don't know unless you do an MRI of your brain, 
your increased risk for brainstem stroke. So here's a patient with bilateral persistent fetal PCOMs and they stroked their brainstem and their cerebellum. All these little bright spots, these white spots, this is a diffusion weighted imaging sequence. So this we call DWI hyperintensity, diffusion weighted in imaging hyperintensities. These are all strokes, pop, 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 pop. So you don't know if you got a, if you got a persistent fetal PCOMs. So why take a chance? Just optimize your, your risk factors. People who optimize the risk factors, your low-fat plant-based diet, they'll never get a brain stem stroke. They'll never develop atherosclerosis. I don't care if they've got a high LPA. Okay, this is just a paper writing about intracranial atherosclerosis association with Alzheimer's. So so-called Alzheimer's, which got blamed on the beta amyloid hypothesis, let's say from the 1990s, it's actually really what they're talking about is primarily an, a vascular disease, dementia. So I don't even like the word Alzheimer's. It kind of makes me cringe. I like to say dementia dementation. All right. And the point I'm saying here, be like some clean arteries, wide open lumens, the central part where the blood flows. And these are a bunch of atherosclerosis. You, you don't got much more than a pinhole in this artery right here. Okay. And then I was talking about hypertension and the Goldilocks balance. You know, you got Goldilocks and the three bears and she wanted things to be just right. And that's what I'm saying. So what you want is the right blood pressure. If your blood pressure is too high, like we said, it's damaging the carotid and other arteries. It comes up under high pressure and it's hitting against the walls of all these little vessels too hard and then they form scar tissue in response to that, and they tend to form clots because it confuses the endothelium. We're not designed to have chronic blood pressure that high. On the other hand, if you overtreat your hypertension, so here's the internal carotid artery going up into the brain, middle cerebral artery when it bifurcates. Um, these are lenticular striates going into the basal ganglia. Then here's the artery wrapping around the convexity. The outer surface of the brain is called the convexity, and they give these penetrating arteries that go into what is called the deep white matter. The deep white matter at the level of the ventricles here, these are the lateral ventricles with cerebral spinal fluid. They're called corona radiata at this level. Above that, they're called centrum semivalia. And the point I'm making is these are largely end arteries. There's not a lot of collateral flow. So if you don't got enough pressure coming up over the top here, you're going to have a much increased risk of getting silent strokes in this spot. I, wrote, I made a skull and crossbones in this location because that's the most common spot. And they'll be high, hyperintense, bright on MRI. So I'll typically call these periventricular flare hyperintensities. Okay. And I, I often see over a hundred of them in patients, a hundred little strokes. So don't get me wrong. I see a lot of people that are 85 years old and they don't have a single one, none. Okay. And I'll bet you, I don't have any on my brain. Okay. And you don't want any, I can tell you fat people have a lot more of them than skinny people and you don't want them. Okay. You don't want hypertension and diabetes and those are preventable diseases. Ooh, I think I went out of the thing I wanted to. Okay. Oh, did I come on? I, I still know how to get back to it. Okay, here we go. Okay, so here'd be a normal looking brain, normal size cerebral ventricles. That means a lack of atrophy. And you can get a little bit of hyperintensity in the cortical spinal tracts, but this is normal. There's no silent strokes. Now here'd be a typical American 75 year old with a whole bunch of them. Um, juxtaventricular touching the ventricles, periventricular near the ventricle, but not touching adjacent to the cortex over here, subcortical. So these are silent strokes. Um, we see tons and tons of these. You know, I do see demented patients that have brains that look pretty normal, okay? Because they're losing, they'd be more atrophic though. They'd have big sulci, increased cerebral spinal fluid in these little gaps between the, the, the brain parenchyma itself, the gyri. So anyways, uh, you don't want this stuff, okay? And it's super common in Americans. All right, so what's also happening? Here's an example of two capillaries. These are blood vessels in the brain. So the, the red arrow indicates the direction of blood flow. These are the red blood cells passing through the capillaries. They have to bend back upon themselves a little bit as they pass through a capillary because the red blood cell size is a little bigger than a capillary. Typical red blood cells about seven microns in diameter. Typical capillaries about five microns in diameter. These blue circles are the oxygen being released from the hemoglobin in the red blood cell, passes through the capillary wall, and then it diffuses to the, the adjacent brain tissue. This is a neuron right here, cell body, axon, synaptic terminal. 
Okay, so this is plenty of oxygen. These little blue circles are going to this neuron. Now down here, I'll show you what happens with hypertension and diabetes. With diabetes, you get thickening of the basement membrane of the endothelial cells. So those are the lining cells of the capillary, but they're sort of spindle-shaped, directed along the long axis of the vessel. This is their nucleus. Anyways, the plasma membrane gets thickened. It can be glycated, for example, by advanced glycation end products. And when it gets thickened, you're going to have less ability to deliver oxygen to the tissues. So you can see you also get hypertrophy of the smooth muscles in the uh, setting of hypertension, and you'll get some fibrotic tissue, collagen, scar tissue laid down, also thickening this capillary wall, which is going to decrease the ability to deliver oxygen to the tissue. So we talked about it, just getting older in general, you get a 20% drop, let's say approximately, according to the literature, I think it's actually less than that in vegans, but theoretically, let's just say it's an average of 20% when you go from 20 years age to 60 years of age. Then if you're diabetic, thickened, pla uh, thickened uh, uh, plasma membrane, uh, basement membrane, then you get some fibrosis from hypertension. You're going to have less and less oxygen delivery to this neuron. Let's say you eat a high fat meal, another 15% drop. Let's say you have sodium in there, another drop in the ability to deliver oxygen to the tissue. Let's say you have caffeine, a vasoconstrictor, another drop in this delivery of oxygen to the tissue. You can see how you are progressively decreasing the amount of oxygen that's going to get to that neuron. And so let's say that neuron is all ramped up from caffeine, from glyphosate, from being stressed out, from being sleep deprived. You could reach a point where this neuron has metabolic demands far beyond the level of oxygen and glucose coming to it. And it might just say, screw this, take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. Okay. And it basically it goes into apoptosis. It cannot meet its energy demands. So that's what it's all about. So the smart move is do everything you can to help yourself. And I also believe you should aim for being the best you can be, because if you do, then you'll do everything the best you can rather than saying, well, at least I'm not as fat as my cousin. Okay. You want to have, you know, make your standards high rather than low. Um, this is just some more additional ways that uh, the capillaries in the brain get damaged. And, you know, high fat diets also increase blood brain barrier permeability in a negative way. They increase the risk that toxins like MSG, for example, can diffuse across uh, breakages in the blood brain barrier and then allow toxins to get in the brain parenchyma. Okay, so it's enough to know that. There's, there's more things that happen. The high fat diet damages the endothelial cells. Diabetes with result in hyperglycemia on a chronic basis will damage the endothelial cells. We're not going to get into all, the, all that today. Here is a potassium sodium ATPase. You are pumping typically two uh, potassium. K plus is for kalium in Latin. That means potassium. Na is natrium in Latin. That means sodium. You're pumping three sodiums out. Three positive charge going out, two coming in. That leads to a net negative charge, negative 65 millivolts. That's a typical electrical grating in a, in a neuron. Okay, then you're going to have more sodium outside the cell than inside the cell. So then you're going to have a chemical gradient as well. So it's called electrochemical gradient. And that gradient is coupled to pumping calcium out. There's, there's far more uh, sodium potassium ATPase pumps than there are NACA uh, sodium calcium exchanger pumps. Anyways, the point is by having that sodium gradient, you can couple it to spinning this wheel here and getting calcium out of the cell, which you want to do. And then this is the battery we're talking about. You have an electrical battery within all your cells, every cell in your body. Um, your neurons in particular spend two-thirds of their energy. That's an important thing to run this uh, sodium-potassium ATPase pump because this electrical gradient does tons of work. They're constantly having to pump ions and other things in and out of the cell to have their action potentials to release their neurotransmitters. Okay, so if you don't have a good gradient here because you eat tons and tons of sodium and you don't eat hardly any potassium, you weaken your ability to pump out calcium and you screw up your, uh, your electrical battery and your cell membranes. Okay, calcium is like an on-off switch of a light inside a cell. When you ramp up plasma, uh, cytoplasm calcium, cytoplasm concentration of calcium, neurons will release their neurotransmitter. The pineal gland will release its melatonin to help you sleep. Okay. 
uh, muscle cells will contract. Cells do the main thing they do when cytoplasm calcium is high. You pump calcium out of the cytoplasm into the endoplasmic reticulum. That's what we call our circle pumps. And if this thing is inhibited because you're inhaling paint or glue or adhesives and whatnot, um, you're going to be less able to post-action potential, reduce your cytoplasm calcium, okay? If you dissipate this grading, you're also going to be less able to get calcium out of the cell. And you don't want uh, chronically elevated cytoplasm calcium because then you overactivate the cell. Okay, this is sort of more of the same. Um, this is all more of the same. I just go into more detail. This is what I was talking about with regard to the glutamate receptors. Here's the NMDA receptor. And I mentioned earlier that glycine also activates it. That's why glyphosate is an excitotoxin, okay? Um, magnesium normally is located in the center of the calcium channel. But when you've got high intracytoplasmic calcium, the magnesium uh, will bounce out because it's positively charged. It's normally attacked, attracted to the negative charge in the cell. But if you have a dissipated gradient, it won't be bound as strongly in the center of that NMDA channel, meaning that it'll be more likely to be hyperactivated and more calcium will be coming into the cell. So the bottom line is magnesium is a good thing. It protects you. Glyphosate is a bad thing. It overexcites your neurons. MSG is a bad thing because it means monosodium glutamate. So it overexcites these neurons. You don't want your neurons overexcited. They can also make you anxious. Well, you don't want that. Okay, this was a little bit, we talked about exercise increasing BDNF. That's a whole other subject. So this is a, this is a whole bunch of stuff on, on membrane ion pumps. Okay, right here is glutamate goes across the synaptic cleft and it binds to what's called an AMPA receptor. That's a sodium channel and binds to an MDA receptor. If you get too much calcium inside the cell because of overactivation of the postsynaptic neuron, you can also activate this um, enzyme called calpane. And it's a great name, Cal for calcium activated, pain for, it causes problems, okay? So excessive excitotoxicity, one of the things it does that leads to death of the postsynaptic neuron is high, chronically high calcium, cytoplasm calcium will activate calpane. We're going to come back to that. Calpane is going to be important. So to avoid it, you know, just avoid excitotoxins, avoid things that smell bad, avoid mitochondrial inhibitors. Um, we won't get into all this. This is the inner mitochondrial membrane. And you got electron transport across this intermitochondrial membrane, like a fireman bucket brigade. The biggest grabber of electrons is oxygen. It's got the second highest electronegativity, meaning desire to grab electrons as fluoride's the highest, okay? And so the electrons are passed down a hill, so to speak, till they reach oxygen. And this is how it normally should work. They pump protons into the intermembranous space between the outer mitochondrial membrane and the inner mitochondrial membrane. And that gradient of, of protons in the mitochondria is then harvested by letting in uh, proton come back through through ATP synthase, and then that will add a phosphate to ADP, adenosine diphosphate. They'll add that phosphate to adenosine triphosphate. Okay, that's how mitochondrial work. That's how most of the energy in the human body is produced. And here's just a bunch of mitochondrial inhibitors. So this is what I meant by a person could easily have be exposed on a daily basis to 20 or more neurotoxins. Okay, and so what you want to do is just avoid all the ones that can be avoided. Okay, avoid excessive dietary fat, especially saturated fat. Avoid the non-organic, you know, food with non-organic corn in it because it's going to be sprayed with atrazine, inhibits complex three. Cadmium. Cadmium can be in some contaminated foods, but for example, it's on uh, brake pads of automobiles. So like, let's say somebody wants to go to Sidewalk Cafe. I'm okay with the Sidewalk Cafe, but I won't go to one that's located on a busy street and stand next to the street, inhaling cadmium and inhaling diesel exhaust. Okay. A lot of people take statins to lower their uh, blood cholesterol. Well, be careful. They also decrease the function of coenzyme Q. Okay have a negative effect on your mitochondria. I've had a lot of people, even doctors tell me, oh, well, I heard metformin is good for aging. Do you think I should take metformin? I'm like, are you stupid? 
metformin is a mitochondrial inhibitor, inhibits complex one. I think I would take a, a, a mitochondrial inhibitor. Are you kidding me? Um, a lot of heavy metals are toxins to mitochondria. Mercury is toxic to mitochondria. Aluminum is toxic to mitochondria. PB is lead. It means plumbing like the Romans used to have lead in their, in their pipes. That's why the Romans kind of became stupid. And some people think that's why the Roman Empire fell was a major contributor. There's other theories, of course, on why Rome fell, but that's one of them. So PB for plumbism, for lead. F minus inhibits complex four. Okay. Um, let's see. There's a whole bunch of people. A lot of people think it's no big deal to take Tylenol. I won't take a Tylenol. That also inhibits complex three. Um, what are some of the other things? These antifungal preservatives, we were talking about that. Uh, titanium dioxide nanoparticles, that's a common thing in sunscreen, a lot of personal care products. That's also uh, inhibits complex too. I would stay away from that. I try to avoid taking antibiotics if you can. A lot of them are mitochondria inhibitors. That's why they kill the bacteria. Um, alcohol, basically, this is more like a Krebs cycle inhibition rather than electron transport, but uh, alcohol is a major brain toxin. Um, iron, zinc, aluminum, and well, iron, zinc, and copper is really when you get in real high concentrations, okay? We talk about iron overload being common in men starting in their 20s. It starts happening in women after they become postmenopausal. A lot of these medicines like, you know, anti-seizure meds, they slow down the brain, inhibiting the mitochondria. So anyways, people can be exposed to a lot of them. And there's a lot of circuit inhibitors. So you see how they can all add up. And, you know, just like I said, be a minimalist. Live like Adam and Eve, but with indoor heating and plumbing. This was another slide. We don't really have time to get into this, but this is the whole theory about leaky gut contributing to uh, cognitive impairment. This combines issues with dormant bacteria, iron overload, reactivating the dormant bacteria. This is the work of Douglas Kell, the PhD from England and the work of Etheresia Pretorius. She's a lady uh, scientist from South Africa. And it's really interesting stuff. We're not going to get into it now, but I'm just letting you know, this is, this is, I think it's a minor contributor to dementia, just so you know, but if you study all the dementia theories, you'll come across that. And it's kind of interesting. Okay. Um, all red blood cells on their outer surface, they have a negative charge. It's largely from the sialic acids, which are just like a glucose with a carboxylic acid attached to them. It's also from the cholesterol sulfates. But the bottom line is being negatively charged, they repel each other. That's good. So they don't clot. But there are things called bridging molecules that are positively charged and of big enough size, they will stick the red blood cells together. LDL cholesterol does that. That's why LDL cholesterol is the most important risk factor for atherosclerosis because it sticks red blood cells together. And atherosclerosis is really a blood clot. IgM antibodies in the acute phase of infection stick red blood cells together. That's why you get more clots during an acute infection. Fibrinogen, which is increased in its release. It's an acute phase reactant protein from the liver. So it's released when a person is stressed out um, and it causes blood clotting. It's a bridging molecule, Okay. But that's another reason why, you know, you don't want to stress out, you know, your old man, you know, he's had a rough day. You'll increase his risk of myocardial infarction. Okay. Um, let's see. Uric acid is also uh, a bridging molecule. This is what I was talking about when the blood comes up in the common carotid artery, hits the median divider between the external and the internal carotid. The turbulent flow bounces off. Some of it are retrograde eddy currents. And there's not supposed to be that much turbulence or retrograde eddy currents in a normal person and our ancestors. So the endothelial lining of the artery here is confused. It'll start to shed off its antithrombotic coating and it'll then express prothrombotic molecules and you form a blood clot here. The I look at these currents, I'm sorry, the eddy currents, meaning that the blood flow is supposed to be coming up in one direction, but it's- Yeah, eddy, eddy currents are, are backwards. So- yeah. The, the endothelial lining of the artery are spindle-shaped cells, and they've got these little like hair-like cilia that project into the lumen, and they sense the direction of flow. They sense the speed, the rate, the turbulence, and when they have abnormal patterns of blood flow, 
they they sense that there's been some type of injury. They're confused. Our, our ancestors weren't able to eat high fat meals three times a day with a lot of uh, salt. Okay. They didn't have blood pressure like modern humans do. So the endothelium gets confused and it'll express prothrombotic molecules on its surface and you'll form clots there. And then the anti-clotting uh, chemicals in the plasma will try to, will try to, um, you know, dissolve this clot and there's an ongoing steady state. But as people get older and sicker or have worse habits, these clots will get big enough. They'll start to occlude the vessel or even little parts will break off distally and cause a stroke. Um, that's like a, like a TIA would be a small little clot breaks off, goes distal, occludes a small artery, but gets dissolved and the function comes back. But, you know, a bigger arterial occlusion or one that can't be dissolved, uh, then it doesn't come back. You'll have a permanent stroke, permanent neurologic deficit. Okay, here's a blood-brain barrier, BBB, blood-brain barrier. These are glucose type 1 transporters. They just are always on. Glucose always goes across them. Okay, and if you open a textbook about the brain, you'll see that it'll tell you the brain has glucose type 1 and glucose type 3 transporters. Okay, but what they don't tell you, I can tell you, if, if you spend a lot of time studying pathophysiology, all the books are wrong. They're almost a joke. Okay. The, the hippocampal neurons also have glucose type four transporters, just like what you have in the skeletal muscles. And that's relevant because these are insulin dependent. So if you've got insulin resistance from eating a high fat diet, you not only have it in your skeletal muscles and you know, your extracranial body, you've got it in your brain because you got glucose type four transporters here. And then what that means is insulin resistance. You're not getting enough glucose into these, um, these brain cells, these neurons. And that's relevant because again, this neuron has to meet its energy demands. And if it can't get enough glucose, that confuses the cell and it'll potentially go into apoptosis and die. I can tell you diabetics are some of the most cognitively impaired patients I ever talked to. I got internal medicine friends that tell me every single one of their patients over 60 is cognitively slow. And in my experience, talking to lots of diabetics, the worst cognitive function I see on a large scale is my kidney failure patients, the ones on dialysis. Almost all of them are really slow mentally. But my uh, diabetic patients, man, they are slow and they don't get it. And most of them are so slow, they, they literally have no hope of ever being cured. When you think about it, if you treat diabetes with a pill, what percentage of patients are cured of diabetes with a pill? Zero. Okay. If you go low fat, low sodium vegan and you catch it early enough, the type two, you're going to cure almost all of them. You know, once you've got permanent damage to the beta cells of the pancreas, you know, it might not be reversible. They might always need some insulin. But even still, you fix your diet, low fat, low sodium plant-based diet, you'll decrease your insulin needs. You'll decrease your insulin resistance. Everything will function better. You'll have less atherosclerosis, less risk of cognitive impairment. Okay. Um, alcohol, we don't got time to get into all this alcohol stuff, but alcohol is a major brain toxin. My advice is don't drink it all. Not one sip, not one drop of the stuff. All this stuff about one or two drinks a day being cardioprotective is, is actually turns out to be wrong. It's nonsense. That's why they call it intoxicated, right? Yeah, yeah, alcohol is bad, and it, it leads to secondary effects. It's all bad. It's a poison. I mean, you look at you, right? You, you swipe an alcohol pad on somebody's skin to quickly kill everything. Okay, don't get me wrong. There's, that's not exactly the same type of alcohol as ethanol. I realize there's a little bit of a difference there, but I'm just saying is there's, no, there's no reward for alcohol. And the idea of let's go get drunk, let's get so. Why would you want to poison your brain? It's stupid. Okay, here's 4-hydroxy-nonanol. That's what we were talking about. This comes from the omega-6 cooking oils. And this is a major poison too. Um, it damages ATP synthase in your mitochondria. You don't, you don't want this. I, I would never eat anything with oil in it. I won't eat anything if, if oil is anywhere listed on the ingredient. The only process, even minimally processed food I eat is organic oatmeal, where there's just one ingredient, just the oats. Um, but 
hydroxynanonol is a major player in the whole Yamashima theory. So this is a Yamashima, Tetsumori Yamashima. He's a neuroscientist from Japan who was tasked with, can you figure out why so many Japanese people are becoming demented compared to the past? And his research led him to what is called the Kalpain-Cathepsin hypothesis of neuronal death. Okay, so we don't need to go into all this, but the bottom line is when you eat omega-6 cooking oils, you get hydroxynanonol. So here's a normal, the good guy, HSP, heat shock protein number 70, and it'll bind damaged proteins and it'll carry them to the lysosome, the recycling center of the neuron. Okay, it also binds the lysosome membrane and it stabilizes it, okay? Uh, so when you get rid of HSP, heat shock protein, because calpane has been activated and calpane cuts it. Calpane cuts it for two reasons. Number one, when hydroxynanol binds to HSP, calpane becomes attractive to it, attracted to it. Okay, number two, calpane itself becomes activated because there's too much calcium in the cytoplasm. And that happens because of all these stimulants, the glutamates, the MSG, the aspartame, sleep deprivation, caffeine. Okay, chronic ischemia can also lead to high cytoplasm calcium, and that gets back to deletory theory. That's another thing, too. These theories all have some overlap. And I love this name, calpain, calcium uh, uh, activated enzyme causing pain. So what am I basically saying is like, what's a smart thing to do? Well, I'm not going to give it a chance. I'm not going to eat any omega-6 cooking oil, so I'll never have this hydroxy nonanol uh, damaging my HSP. Good. Okay, I'm going to avoid all these stimulants, so I won't have this enzyme activated. Good. Okay, here's just a, a like an electron micrograph showing uh, what happens. So here'd be a normal lysosome, like a sort of this black dot here, if you will. And then here's one where the lysosomal membrane has has ruptured, and now the lysosomal contents are spilling into the adjacent uh, cytoplasm of the neuron. And that's why you have an irregular borders to this lysosome. And then cathepsin's in there, and it's just going to start digesting, you know, important proteins in the cytoplasm, and the cell's going to die. Okay, so here's the guy's name, Tetsumori Yamashima. He's the guy who uh, did all that research. Real interesting stuff. And then also, he showed that you're also getting destruction of neurons in the arcuate nucleus. You know, these are gradual processes that slowly happen over the course of decades. But, you know, you don't want to lose nucleus. That's your hunger center for managing your hunger center. So when you're destroying neurons in your hunger center, you're going to have less ability to regulate your hunger. And you also destroy neurons in your hippocampus, your memory center. You're going to become progressively stupider less able to remember things. Okay, so anyways, that's the slides I got for today. Um, that was very interesting. And I'm sure that there's a lot more into it that we could, we could go on for a long period of time, but it, it gives us a better appreciation. Some people just say, just tell me what I have to do and what I shouldn't do, and I'll do it. And other people want to have more detail, but you know, our body is a miraculous machine and we don't plug in anywhere. So you know, that energy has to come from something and, and whatever makes it run is, is totally dependent upon things from the outside, the things that we're breathing and touching and, and eating. So it's good to know these things. I have a question from uh, Rick. He said, will a CAT scan of the brain show the stroke spots like the MRI? Um, a CT brain is, it's good for acute situations. You know, a patient felt had had rule out bleed. So a CT is very good for quickly excluding any type of bleeding in the brain. But the MRI is much more sensitive for showing, you know, what you're describing there as stroke-like spots. And what I'm also going to tell you is every day in front of every single hospital in the Western world, there's like a river of fat hypertensive diabetics that all come in and get all these tests. 
And everybody, it, to me, it reminds me of, you know, the Middle Ages going on a pilgrimage to Canterbury. We're going to the hospital. We're going to get this test. I'm getting this test today. And what I'm trying to say is you don't cure anybody with an X-ray, a CAT scan, or an MRI. The way you make yourself healthier is you eat the low-fat, low-sodium vegan diet. You get your sleep. You manage your stress. You maintain your social relationships. Religion makes people a lot healthier. Um, get your sunshine. That's what makes a difference and makes you healthier. And it's sort of like how many people are low-fat, low-sodium, complete, 100% vegans? One in a thousand, maybe. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is everybody wants to do the easy stuff, go for a test. Getting a CAT scan or MRI, that's not going to change your brain. What's going to make your brain better is if you optimize this diet and lifestyle and exercise. So that's what I'm trying to say, you know, and, and sort of like when you, every time you get a head CT, you radiate your brain a little. It's not much, but it does add up eventually. So one CAT scan is no big deal. One MRI is probably no big deal, but still I wouldn't volunteer for it for no reason. Let me tell you something. If you live in a Western world and you're over 50, you probably got at least one brain spot. You might not. I see some people at 85 that are real healthy. They don't have any, but you probably got at least one and seeing it's not going to change anything. You should just know, fix your diet and your lifestyle now. Because uh, because you're going an MRI, you're sitting in a magnet, you know, 15,000, 30,000 times more powerful than the Earth's magnetic field and gradient, uh, perpendicular gradient fields are knocking all your protons out of alignment many thousands of times. That's not going to make you healthier. It's probably not going to hurt you, at least not much. But what I'm saying is, you know, everybody wants to go for colonoscopy and get a tube up their butt, but they don't want to become a vegan, which is the main thing that will protect them from colon cancer, you know. That's a good bumper sticker. Okay. Uh, Jay Gry said, McDougal says, the main cause of Alzheimer's dementia is aluminum poisoning. Is this totally true or is it the plaques? Okay. Now, I kind of laugh and smile at this. I think McDougal is a, is a great, great, great doctor. Okay. I think he's probably the best nutrition doctor in the whole world. Okay. I'll give him credit for all that. But I would also say he's an internal medicine guy. And he is right that there's like over a thousand papers on aluminum and it is a neurotoxin. But you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of Shakespeare when he was talking to his friend Horatio. And he said, Horatio, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy. And so what I'm trying to say is, yeah, aluminum is a neurotoxin, but there's a whole bunch of other things that are as important or more important. So aluminum is relevant and you want to avoid aluminum. But all this other stuff I talked about, I think um, it's, you know, as important or more important. I think it's more important actually. And, you know, like I said, don't be spraying deodorant, you know, then you're inhaling aluminum. Okay. Um, so this, I think the deletory theory and my theory enable you to quickly see what you need to do to avoid about 30 different neurotoxins. And I also said, live like Adam and Eve, but keep your indoor heating and plumbing. Be simple. You know, you don't need all these personal care products. Okay. They're all full of toxic chemicals. Um, when you rubber stuff on yourself, you're transdermally absorbing it. So anyways, um, aluminum is a neurotoxin, but there's major other ones. And I think the most common stuff is what I kind of talked about. Uh, the, the vascular component of chronic cerebral hypoperfusion, then superimposed neurotoxins, all the stuff I talked about, neurovascular uncoupling. Um, but they all contribute. And eventually you hit a tipping point <clears throat> where the neuron just dies. Okay. Uh, let's see. Oh, Vague Knowledge wants to know, is it true that walnuts have the best omega-3 ratio of nuts? 
Well, I heard walnuts have a lot of omega-3s. Like I said, I, I'm kind of in, I guess you could call there's the McDougal school, and then there's another school of vegans who believe you really got to do all these things, eat nuts, eat flax, and all this other stuff to get your omega-3s. I'm kind of of a mindset that you don't need to do that because there's a surprising large amount of omega-3s in these regular plant foods. Um, so I, I'm aware of the papers, but I'll also tell you something. The, the literature has changed. Once a product becomes profitable, all of a sudden it, it acquires what you might call a bodyguard of lies, okay? All this positive press comes out. Oh, you know, caffeine is good for you. Uh, olive oil, it's good for you. Soy, it's good for you. You go back and read the old papers and they'll, they'll tell you all the problems. And back when there was no money involved and no one cared. So any profitable food, like, and the reason I'm getting into that is nuts are profitable food. There is tons of positive papers come out about nuns, let's say the last 20 years, about nuts. And so uh, I think it's exaggerated. I'll, I'll just leave it at that. I'm not saying there's a big problem with them, but I, I wouldn't go looking for all that extra fat. I don't think I need it. Um, so that's my take. But I'm, I am aware other people say, oh, no, you need omega-3 or you're going to be demented, Okay. Uh, I, I don't buy it. I kind of see things like McDougal does on this one and like a uh, Pritikin and the low fat uh, vegan school. Cause I looked at the numbers on the, on the omega threes and there's a lot of, there's plenty of omega threes based on what I think the needs are. Cause like I said, your neurons don't turn over that much and we don't talk about it much, but just like omega six, uh, PUFAs, polyunsaturated fatty acids undergo lipid peroxidation and have all these problems related to them. You know, I worry that omega threes do too. Uh, even though I haven't, I haven't studied that extensively, but why wouldn't they have lipid peroxidation? They suppress the immune system potentially. They are thought to increase uh, that immune suppression is potentially a big issue. They increase the risk of prostate cancer. So I'm not a big seeker of them. I wouldn't worry about them. You know, I see everybody messed up from diabetes and hypertension and obesity and cancer. Okay. So I don't think, I, I, I just don't see omega threes. You know, maybe I'm wrong. I don't think so. Yeah. And it, there's just so much, uh, so many different opinions as far as that goes. And, and then the value of the testing and, 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 you know, if you, if you get a blood test, is that accurate reading and, and how do they determine what, what is the level and should you supplement with the EPA, DHA? Yeah. What I, what I see always happening is there's always somebody who wants to sell something. So then they got to convince the person that there's a deficiency and then they'll try to come up with some test or some way to gauge it. And so they're going to say, buy my test, buy my supplement. You know, and I don't think Adam and Eve, you know, went around looking for omega-3 sources too much. I don't think we need to. All these blue zone people, you know, they're a bunch of backward illiterates, okay? And they're, you know, looking good in their 90s, whereas all these, you know, highly educated Americans are all fat and sick. Yeah, yeah, because there there are some plant-based doctors that, that say that they're, that, that is a concern for brain health. So I think that that's... That's a that's a difficult thing for people to navigate when they're hearing some camps say you better get tested and you better supplement if you're deficient or low and in the EPA DHA and then having the other camps saying you, you have to avoid these fats. <laughs> so, I'm not I'm not I'm just letting you know I'm not buying it. I spent a lot of time reading the you know the cognitive decline literature, if you will, and I'm not buying it. You know, it sounds like to me like a Johnny come lately. Help us sell our stuff. You know, you need a paper, you need a conclusion, then you can sell your stuff. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, and like I said, 
I think, uh, you know, we were already told a long time ago, Adam and Eve, what you need to live, Genesis 129. I, I, I just don't think, you know, our ancestors to be healthy. I don't see these blue zone people seeking out omega-3 sources, you know. Okay. Well, that's fair enough. Oh, we have so many more questions. And I do want to let everybody know that we've got Dr. Rogers scheduled to come back in a couple of weeks. He's going to be talking about a different topic that we'll let you know about. If you're subscribed, you'll find out about that soon. But I did want to uh, let you know, so if you didn't get any questions, if your questions answered, you'll have that opportunity to, to join in again when he comes back. And I did really want to extend my heartfelt thanks to, to our guest, uh, the bad boy of veganism, health and nutrition, Dr. Rogers. <laughs> I mean, you, you just like fearlessly share your knowledge and, and you shed light up. On, on these uh, facts about dementia. And a lot of times people are not talking about it. So we really do appreciate it. And you just have such a unique perspective, you know, and, and a dedication to, to uncovering the facts. And they, they matter a lot. And we really, really do appreciate it. And I'm sure that our Green Warriors have gained invaluable insights from our conversation today. Thanks. So everyone, click like to show your appreciation. That's how we applaud So for what Dr. Rogers shared with us today. Dr. Rogers, tell us about what you do and how we can find you on social media. Oh, well, I got a YouTube channel. Uh, you're more than welcome to watch my videos there. Uh, I go into, you know, specific topics, maybe go into more detail on some of these topics. Uh, so, you know, I'm interested in nutrition. Um, that's probably the main thing. I do a lot of stuff with this cognitive functions too. That was a long story, but that was a big part of my life. I was psychologically traumatized to go from not caring about school to all of a sudden be put at Stanford and then med school where I wasn't as academically ready as I might've been. And so that was like a big rite of passage for me to really figure out academics and cognitive optimization. Okay. And then the other thing that got me going was when my parents got sick and I wasn't really able to help them much. And I'm like, you know what? I did everything you could ever want a doctor to do. Okay. I went to Harvard. I was first in my class. And so I just said, well, I guess medicine can't do anything. And then I gradually didn't realize it until it was too late. Man, if I had known about low-fat vegan diet, I might have been able to save my mother and keep her alive for, you know, an extra decade or something. And I might have been able to, you know, help my father because he ended up having a stroke four hours after his cabin. So what I'm trying to say is it kind of pissed me off a little bit that, you know, I gave my life to be this great doctor and all this information was kind of hidden from me. And so now I know it and I'll share and I'll teach it. But, um, you know, that was kind of where, where I got this motivation and energy. And what I saw is the most powerful thing in all of health is this nutrition, avoidance of toxins and this other, you know, lifestyle, psychological stuff. So, um, yeah, that's pretty much all I do is I have, the, I have the YouTube channel, Peter Rogers, MD. I've written a bunch of books, too. My books are you'll find them being quite advanced. You know, if you look at the, the style, because I usually talk to doctors, I talk to bunch of doctors every day. And so I, I kind of write at that level, but I think a lot of people like that. I tell a lot of jokes too, in the sense that you can't just plow through fact, 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 fact. So I'll try to make a joke, share a concept, make a joke. Uh, you know, I, I, if people are interested, that's another thing they can look at. Well, that, that's really great. You do. You, and, and your books are on so many different topics, not just uh, nutrition and and health. So there's a lot to learn. So uh, 
Dr. Rogers, what's your final take-home message for our Green Warriors? Well, what I'm saying is I think the proper attitude is, number one, be grateful for the fact that there is something that exists so you can age quite well. Like, you know, like I said, a typical 60-year-old's fat, sick, and stupid. I'm 60. I'm smart. I'm strong. I got all this energy. And you could, you know, you could age better, you know, so you can avoid these. No one has to get coronary artery disease. Like Esselstyn says, it's a paper tiger, toothless paper tiger. Low-fat vegans, they don't get atherosclerosis, okay? And the same people who don't get atherosclerosis, they're usually skinny and they don't get diabetes either. And they're not fat and they age a lot better and they are much less likely to become demented. So why not? Okay, so do all that stuff too. I also think religion really helps a lot of people. They're much healthier. It doesn't really get talked much in the, in the popular sphere, but religious people, uh, like Koenig's book about it, he did all the research on it. They're a lot healthier. Exercise makes a big difference. Get your sleep, manage your stress, maintain your social your social relationships with your friends, your family and whatnot, your peers, your coworkers, because that's an important part of, of living healthy. All these uh, blue zone centenarians tended to have relatively calm, relaxed personalities and a sense of humor. And that helps them to sort of, you know, handle the ups and downs of life, makes them more resilient. Uh, live like Adam and Eve, but keep your indoor heating and plumbing. Um, you can only focus on a few things. You know, you can't you can't do everything. You, you just be dissipated and, and mediocre. So you pick a few things you can do in life. And you do those as well as you can and go with that. Very well said. Well, Green Warriors, tell us what you're going to remember. Type it in the comments. What are you going to remember from today? There's so much to, to, that we learn. One of my takeaways is that uh, over-treating hypertension with medication may reduce blood flow to the brain. Well, of course, we can lower blood pressure by just adopting a low-fat, whole-food, plant-based, SOS-free lifestyle. And I wanted to also thank... Uh, Jess Tass Voice, because she did the promos and she did the voiceovers. And Jess Tass Voice, tell us who's coming up next. Suffering from morbid obesity, depression, anxiety, and many other medical conditions, Jillian Kidd shares how she adopted a whole food plant-based diet to manage and recover from many years of alcohol and food addiction. Join us on Wednesday, October 4th, 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific, on Be Green with Amy Live. But of course, I want to thank all of you, the Green Warriors, that have joined us today and, and made that possible for us to be here. And I want to offer you five free recipes, whole food plant-based recipes. It's called Hey, I Can Make That. And if you just go to my website, begreenwithamy.com slash join, those will be available to you. And if you would like to uh, join me and Dr. Rogers, we're going to he's going to say the last word of my tagline, and you can type in the whole tagline if you like, and join me as we sign off. Are you ready, Dr. Rogers? Yeah. Okay. Well, until I see all of you again, remember, be strong, be well, and be green. green. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Rogers. Thank My you, Green Warriors. Suffering. Now you can listen to Be Green with Amy expert interviews wherever you go. Listen while walking, meal prepping, or traveling. Find Be Green with Amy on Apple, Google, Alexa, Amazon, or virtually anywhere you find podcasts. Be strong, be well, and be green with Be Green with Amy.